That to-do list you have needs one more thing. Chill. It's an easy thing to do. Just crack open an ice-cold Coors Light and chill. Take the afternoon off and binge watch anything. Go to happy hour and stay for a couple hours. Who's counting anyways? Or hang out with just your dog because you've had enough human interaction this week. Whatever you do, do it with a Coors Light. Mountain cold refreshment made to chill. 2020 Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Celebrate responsibly. Hey, it's Gonzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Gonzano's Bald Face Truth. There's a lot I love about college athletics. I love the sound of a college football stadium on game day. I love the NCAA tournament, especially that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday opening weekend. It's just magic. I love to see college kids from one season to another show growth. I even like watching young coaches, first time being a head coach, evolve and find their legs. Kind of fashion who they're going to be. I love the competition. I love the uh, what used to be the innocence of it. It's still out there in some sports. Like I, I think some of the sports have not less, not yet sold their soul. College football has sold its soul. Major college football. But I love a lot about college athletics, and it's why when people ask me what's your favorite sport to cover, I'll say college football. Because it is. And I walked around. I remember last season, I walked around Rice-Eccles Stadium in Salt Lake City before kickoff of the season opener. Florida was playing at Utah. It was the first Pac-12 game on week zero. Earlier that week, it, you know, it wasn't a Saturday game. I think it was a Thursday or a Friday game. And I went out to Salt Lake City and just kind of so walked around the stadium before kickoff the buzz of the stadium the smell of hot dogs the teams warming up on the field the beautiful scenery of the hills behind utah's home stadium i mean any college football stadium's got those kinds of selling points um i love a lot about college sports but lately like you i've been looking at what's going on the sec and the big 10 would like to turn the expanding playoff into an invitational tournament that is kind of their little tournament. Latest uh, proposal has automatic bids for six members and six members who would not be non-conference champions. They would not be conference champions. Basically six non-conference auto bids in those two conferences. Um, greed is killing college football. The absence of leadership is killing college football. The NCAA today says it will not pursue penalties for NIL inducement. Because why? Because uh, the NCAA has figured out this is not a fight it wants to get into right now. It's not enforceable. Meanwhile, there's a bill in Salem, in the Oregon Senate, that, with, that aims to stop the NCAA from penalizing schools who are uh, giving out inducements. Um, I am wondering... At what point you're going to be tuned off, turned off enough to tune out? Because I think there is a breaking point for college athletics. I don't know if it's got there yet, but I think the implosion of the Pac-12, the the Florida State lawsuit, uh, the fact that there's 
no no transfer policy really in college athletics. The uh, the the news today they're not going to police the NIL inducements. Um, the idea that that the NCAA is being sued by former athletes to the tune of three billion dollars in name image likeness back pay. You've got um, you got conferences talking about deeming athletes employees. You got an Ivy League school that's unionizing. You have uh, Greg Sankey, the SEC commissioner, and Tony Petiti, the Big Ten commissioner, that are trying to take the playoff for themselves. Me and the threat they're using, the leverage they're using is, well, we'll just split away from the NCAA and do our own thing. And Florida State is, you know, meanwhile suing the ACC. On what point are you going to be so turned off that you go, I just want the simplicity of the NFL. I just want the above-the-board NBA problems instead of the below-the-table what is going on with the transfer policy, NIL, corruption, greed, the college football playoff format. You tell me, because I thought the whole Michigan saga this season with sign-stealing was bad. Like it, it was bad that people were talking about it as Michigan was busy going undefeated and having a great season. It was bad that, you know, Michigan crept towards the playoff and Jim Harbaugh had had to sit out some games and couldn't coach. I thought it was kind of an ugly stain on the season, but it was not the worst thing that was going on because of a name image likeness problems, because of the transfer portal chaos that it causes because of the Pac-12 implosion, because of what was looming with uh, lawsuits, several lawsuits in the NCAA, I thought, gosh, this sport is in real trouble. And then what happened? The playoff happened. And the four playoff or the three playoff games, the two semifinals in the national championship, drew record audiences. People tuned in. And people said, look, this, this sport is alive and well. Based on the fact that Michigan and Washington and that national title game drew a healthy, robust, larger than ever audience. People tuned into the semifinal games featuring Texas and Washington and Alabama and Michigan and said, This is great. The sport is alive and well. But will you tune out? And and at what point? If the CFP gets greedy, will you tune out? Or are you here for it no matter what? If it locks out the Pacific time zone. Are you here for it, or will you tune out? If it gives automatic bids to six or eight or even two teams in the Big Ten and the SEC that aren't the conference champion, automatic bid, even if you're not the conference champion, will you tune out? I think greed is killing college football. Has it killed it for you yet, though? The absence of leadership, the Big Ten and the SEC thing, like the ACC, the Big 12, and the Group of Five schools, they've got numbers. They've got numbers on the Big Ten and the, and the SEC. But what they don't have, they don't have the best teams. They don't have the biggest brands. And television pays attention to the best teams and the biggest brands. There is a standoff going on in that college football playoff negotiation room. And we're being told that, you know, the... Uh, the, um, the the commissioners have been asked to take the various models, the proposals of, hey, just uh, at large, uh, you know, forget the at large teams. 
let's do automatic qualifiers. Let's do three. Let's do four. Let's do two uh, from each conference, from uh, the SEC and the Big Ten, and then the rest can fight over the at-larges instead of allowing the teams to settle it on the field where it's supposed to be settled. The NCAA tournament we hold up as this shining example of the postseason done right, but we all know it's going to be threatened. We all know that the SEC in particular is eyeing the automatic bids that go to conferences like the Big Sky Conference and saying, well, why should they get an automatic? Shouldn't they just get an at-large berth, and shouldn't we have more berths for our teams? Doesn't anybody want to see the fifth or the sixth or the seventh-place team in the SEC more than they want to see Portland State or Weber State? It's a conversation we need to have, and I want to have with you. 503-417-7575. You tell me, if this gets any more greedy, if it gets any more litigious, if it gets any more uh, messy, will you tune out? Or are you ready? Are you already at that point? Or are you there to say, you know what? It's ugly. I hate it. It's not what I grew up with. But damn it, if Michigan is playing Ohio State or LSU is playing Oregon, uh, I'm here for it. 503-417-7575. Got a great show today. We'll be a little all over the map as we are on Fridays. I try to, t- I tend to try to have more fun on a Friday because I think you're in that mood. I think something happens on Fridays right around maybe about 12.30, 1 o'clock Pacific time. I know the East Coast is already kind of clock-watching at that time, and I feel like a lot of you out there are probably thinking about what you're going to do on the weekend and where you are. So the Friday shows, by the time we get to 3 o'clock on a Friday, I'm thinking about guests like John Strong, the voice of American soccer. Texted him today, said, why don't you come on, and we'll talk about anything and everything. Good. Cool. Fox Sports broadcaster coming up at 3.20. John Papadakis, the singing linebacker from USC, played back in the heyday of USC. It's the father of Petros Papadakis. He texted me this morning. He said, I got a new album out. If you haven't heard the singing linebacker, you're going to hear him today. He's a great interview. He'll be here at 4 o'clock. And we're going we're gonna to have him talk like they do on those fancy uh, shows where they interview musicians. We'll have him talk about some of his songs. But I also want to have him talk about the heyday of USC football. Reggie Bush showing up in John Papadakis's Greek restaurant with Pete Carroll. How much of a place to be seen was that? And what about the NIL deals that were going down in that place? We'll talk to Papadakis at 4 o'clock. We've got Punch It Audio, great sound for you. Also, as you, uh, as you think about your weekend, we'll talk a little bit about youth sports. A friend of mine is doing something novel when it comes to his kid and youth sports. I want to tell you about it. And uh, I think it's interesting. It's got me thinking about what your family and my family might want to consider when it comes to youth sports. But I want to talk about this uh, greed and the corruption and the litigation and the playoff tug of war and NIL inducements and the NCAA looking powerless. And um, is it killing it for you? Is the absence of leadership in major college athletics killing it and killing your buzz? 503-417-7575 is a phone number. We'll go to the phone line. Stephen, but you help me out. Is it killing it for you yet at this point? It is a little bit, but I would be crazy to say that I'm not going to watch. Like you said, when there's a big game on, when Michigan plays Ohio State, am I watching? Yeah, I'm going to watch that game. But at the same time, 
like there is a part of me that says, man, should I think about it? Like, should I think about not watching this because of what's going on? I don't like it. And I think it's ruining, not ruining the sport, but it's making it less competitive. And the fact, you know, I, I'm, I'm on the page of, I almost think that 12 teams is too much for the playoff. Like they're going to just water down the regular season product and it's not going to matter. Like at some point we're going to get too many teams in this tournament and it's going to be bad. And then we talk about the NCAA tournament. That's my favorite time of year. I love March. I love March Madness. It is my favorite. It was my dream to play in March Madness. I just wasn't good enough, unfortunately. And they're already talking about going to 96 teams. Like at some point we need to just keep it as it is and not make it about how much money can we possibly get and just make it a good product. And it, they're just, there's they're teetering on that line, John, of making it, making so much money, but then hurting the product. I, I'm okay with making as much money as possible. I get it. That's what you're supposed to do in your job, but the product's going to get worse and it's going to make it just less and less and less fun. So I do worry about it, John, I will say, especially college sports, because I'm with you. You know, I worked for the Blazers. I worked in the. I watched the NBA. I love college sports more than like professional sports. I think it is more, much more passionate. There's, it's so much more fun. There's a lot of mistakes that are made by the players on the court and the field, and I love that part of the game. But they're trying to make it a mini professional league. And yeah, I don't, I don't think, like. I don't it. think it's going to work that well. I don't like it, but I also I can't speak for the our listeners, and so I want to hear from you if you're listening to this conversation. Is greed killing it for you? Five zero three four one seven seventy five seventy five. Or is it just annoying and you go, ah, but I'm going to watch anyway? Or are you going, hey, this is what we need to do. We need to evolve. We need to move forward. College athletics needs to get with it. Uh, let's have the conversation. Let's go out to the phone lines. Matt is in Eugene. Matt, you start us off. Uh, thanks. I'm glad to be talking to you today about this because I think I agree with you that greed is ruining the game. But I'm going to take a little contrarian view on it that one of the things that we want as fans is good football. And I think so much of what we've seen in the last couple of years is that, you know, a team loses one game or two game and they're out of it. Or you have like that scrum that we had this last year where you had a bunch of one loss teams. Like, is this team better than that? And we got to believe that some of those one loss or two loss um, power five teams are better than the, you know, second-rung teams. And so for them to lose two games and be out of it, um, thing. so I agree with you, the greed is too much, and you shouldn't just be, you know, big yeah. time or no time. But I think there is, you know, what's the best football? And I think if we can uh, get to what would be the best games to see yeah. in the playoffs. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you, Matt, to an extent. I, I think – we need the best teams in the playoff. Whether it's 12 or 14 or 16 or 100, you get the best teams. The problem I have with automatically qualifying multiple teams with the Big Ten, multiple teams with the SEC, uh, if you gave three to each or you gave four to each and you gave three to the Big 12 and the ACC, you know, if you had done that in this year's playoff, you would have had six teams that were unranked that would have made the playoff. And so I want to believe that the conference champion earned something, earned an automatic bid, earned an automatic spot, may have earned a you know the highest-ranked conference champions, the two highest-ranked conference champions in the polls, should receive first-round buys if, if it's a 12-team playoff or a 14-team playoff, whatever you're going to do. Give them some reward. But for everybody else... I would like the selection committee to sit back and go, okay, yeah, a two-loss LSU team, for example, 
or a one-loss Florida State team uh, deserves to be in and we're giving them an at-large berth. And guess what? Gosh, Liberty undefeated. We just don't think they could stay on the field. They're undefeated. They didn't play anybody. Guess what? They're not making the playoff. Let a committee decide who's in and who's out. Give your give your conference champion the automatic bid. But the problem I have is the SEC and the Big Ten are now saying they want three or four auto auto bids, and the rest are going no. And then the SEC and Big Ten, what are they doing as leverage? They're posturing in a way like, hey, we'll we'll leave. We'll just leave the NCAA. We'll do our own thing. I think that would be terrible for the for the SEC and the Big Ten. I think it'd be terrible for the rest of college football. It'd be bad for for all of us. Mark's in Portland. Mark, where are you on any of this? Uh, well, I, I I understand what you're saying, but I, I look at this. The, the greed is and power control has always been there, John. I mean, the SEC and the Big Ten, like I said, have they play in four or five of the biggest games in these bowl games that now really nobody's nobody's really that tuned in to these bowl games that don't mean anything. So I'm I'm excited. I know we need to iron out the kinks. It's not right that two conferences should get four teams in the playoffs automatically. I totally agree with that. But I, in this format, a t- a, the 2000 Beavers would have had a chance to win the national championships. They would have controlled their own destiny. 2001, 2012, 2011, Oregon, all those teams are going to be able to settle it uh you know, in a postseason where they control their own destiny. So I think they should go to 16 teams. That would eliminate the automatic bids completely. So, you know, the SEC and Big Ten champions should not uh, get a buy every year automatically. If we can go to 16 teams, then everybody's playing the same amount of games. Um, but, yeah, they're definitely trying to, to make this a two-conference uh college football i think you're going to see them go after other teams and start plucking at the acc and the big 12 yeah, i mean you're, you're darn right that way they're going to go after notre dame they're going to go after florida state clemson uh they're you know they'll look at the big 12 maybe maybe they'll take arizona state you know because they want the phoenix tv market um i think they're going to try to do all that the question is like i like the idea of it being settled on the field I like the idea of, you know, 12 or 14, 16, whatever you decide is fine with me, uh, better than four. Uh, But I don't like so many automatic qualifiers. I want the teams to have to earn it. I want them to have to schedule non-conference games to prove they belong. I want them to have to win games to prove they're in, not, you know, finish with three losses and go, well, we're the third best team in the Big Ten, so we're automatically in. doesn't matter if we're any good or not. Sean is in Roseburg. Sean, welcome. Hey, how you doing? Good. I tell you what, greed is absolutely driving this football, college football, into the ground. I'm a diehard Ducks fan, but I'm also a Pac-12 fan. And when I saw this thing starting to cripple down and just destroy the whole West Coast, and then our side joining into the middle where you're going to the pack to the, the 10 to make what a power conference for who? I mean, really let's just get back to the basics. We have yeah. our home teams. We have our. Yeah. I, I, you, you dropped mid thought, but I get it. And here's the other thing. I'm like sitting back going, go Oregon, go USC, go Washington. Go UCLA. Go disrupt. 
and prove that the Pac-12 had the best teams or some of the best teams and could have provided a wonderful check and a little bit of balance to the ecosystem of college football. Because if the Pac-12 existed, the Pacific time zone would say, hey, we've got good teams, we've got good players. We've got uh, players uh, two years ago win the Heisman Trophy and Caleb Williams, runner-up last year, teams that finished in the top 10, 12 of the, of the CFP rankings. Uh, Pac-12 would have been well-positioned, but, um, you know, the Big Ten went shopping. Well, I wanted to ask you a question real quick. we gotta go, we got to go to break. Okay, okay. John Strong, Voice of American Soccer, next, but let's catch up after his interview. John Strong is the Voice of American Soccer, Fox Sports' lead soccer play-by-play announcer. Man of the world. I'm going to ask him about this college uh, football conundrum we've been talking about. Now, uh, NIL, NCAA saying they're not going to uh, pursue punishments for possible uh, NCAA violations for NIL inducements. You've got Florida State suing its conference. You've got the college football playoff just about to expand for two years. But the two years after that, the SEC and the Big Ten are fighting over births already in another expansion. Uh, You've got uh, the Pac-12 imploding. You've got uh, a lot of money, the transfer portal, greed. uh, And some people are turned turned off by it. But will they stop watching? I don't know about that. I, I think you might line up and watch if there's a good game on. And so are they getting some of this right or not? Or am I alone in looking at this and saying, gosh, we're ruining this? John Strong. Voice of American Soccer with us. How are you, man? I got to say, the the way you slammed the door on Stephen there at the end of the last segment, I was getting bad flashbacks to when I was on with you. <laughs> you know what he wanted to know? Stephen, what did you want to know? Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to ask you if you have a problem with uh, the 12-team playoff already looking to be replaced by a 14- or 16-team playoff before uh, it even starting. Now, see, we're right up against the commercial break. and I, I guess... Where have I heard that before? Don Garber. <laughs> 2007, the night the night that my career almost ended before it started. Tell the story. Go ahead. Tell the story. Let's see how good so you are at telling the story. This is like a month into the very existence of this program, and I was fresh out of college at Oregon. I had no clue what I was doing. I was your producer in huge, sarcastic air quotes, because especially then, you were not going to be produced by anyone. But like the first guest I'd ever booked was MLS Commissioner Don Garber, who... We didn't quite know it at the time, but that was his first visit to Portland. Merritt Paulson had just bought the Timbers, and that was the first in-person meeting about what if we did an MLS expansion team in Portland. And listen, there's a whole long story. It involves names like Mike Golub and Jay Allen and Lars Larson and all that, but the short version is you hung up on Don Garber, commissioner of MLS, live on the air because you were up against a break, and I think you also misunderstood like, the big red button is the hang-up as compared to the, the very yeah. nice put them on hold. What's the, difference? Still, What's the difference between putting somebody on hold and hanging up on them? I'm not talking to me. If you put either. them on hold, then some schlub like me can get on, hey, Don, thanks for coming on, really appreciate it. And if you hit the big red button, it's like click, beep. And I still remember to this day, <laughs> after you did that, and my heart sinks, and I look at the phone panel, and after like a five-second pause, it starts blinking again which means it's ringing, and it's like my entire life flashing before my eyes as one of my former employers who had arranged the interview, and I remember him saying, John, what the heck just happened? I'm like, uh, I don't know. I... So that was a fun day. So, yeah, up against the break, all those sorts of things, 
big emotional flashbacks. How are you, bud? Good to see well, you. you. You know, I had Garber back on, and I talked to him after that, and we're good. I know, a few times. I, he get, he's a New York guy. He gets it. Like, I was done with him. Go away. He's dealing with bigger fish right now than uh, local radio host. <laughs> yes. What, what, do you, what do you think about what I'm talking about? I, you know, you see it across sports. I mean, there's more money. There's bigger platforms. All of this stuff seems less innocent by the minute. But at what point do you think fans go, enough's enough. I needed my college sports to be at least pretending to be innocent. It's tough because it sounds super cynical to say what I'm going to say. But I think there's enough evidence at this point that there really is a disconnect between very legitimate, very meaningful, very important, bigger-picture conversations about the confluence of sports and money and politics and human rights and, and all of these sorts of things and people just wanting to sit and watch the game. And this is something I think you've nailed over the years, that there's a lot of us, and, and it doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you you know, callous and uncaring to some of the bad things that go on in the world. But, you know, I, and I can relate to this as well. This is kind of me as a football fan where I so look forward to just sitting on the couch Sunday afternoon, Saturday night, whatever it is. And I just want to watch my team play and I kind of want to escape from the world for a while. So I don't really know that there's a huge connection between those two things. And, and you know, it's a much larger conversation. One of your callers the past segment makes a terrific point that I was going to make. When you say greed, is that the greed of the bowl games? Is that the greed of the conference commissioners? Is that the greed of the last 40 years of college football? Is, it just, is this just consolidation? Is this normal? Is this natural? There's a, bunch, there's a, a swirling confluence of things here, including the fact that you are starting to get to this point where everyone from the players looking to unionize to the NIL collectives to you know, the people running Florida State are like, wait a minute, is any of this stuff actually legal? Can, do you, does anyone actually have the power to tell us we can't do these things we want to do? And the unfortunate answer for the NCAA and for a lot of other people is actually no, there isn't. So as you've talked about a lot, all of this could have been avoided. Better decisions could have been made, particularly in the 1980s when the Supreme Court case with TV rights sort of ripped the first Band-Aid off. And because people wanted to hold on to the way it had always been, because it benefited them, we, we get ourselves in these convulsions of change and chaos. But yeah, for me as a Duck, as a Duck fan, like i kind of looking forward to see, like it's cool, they're playing Ohio State, they're playing Michigan, they're still playing UW, I, they're still playing Oregon State, thankfully. Like... There, there's a better access pathway now. Like, how do they stack up at the top level to play for a national title? I'm looking forward to this fall, even as it kind of breaks my heart how we got there. I look at, you know, and I'm kind of a throwback in that I, I thought that the commissioners of the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball, soccer, I thought they were always looking out for the best interest of the game, like Kennesaw Mountain Landis was doing with the Black Sox in 1919. And then I later found out, and I lost my innocence, John Strong, when I found out these commissioners work for the owners, and they're not—they're thinking about printing money. They're not thinking about what's best for the game. Is there anybody thinking about what's best for college athletics? <laughs> I suppose it means, or it depends on what you mean by that, you know. And and I understand the sort of protection of the innocence of it, but also—and and this was sort of my inside view of the sausage making when I was a student at Oregon—and you kind of see, like, you know man, as Oregon football is really blowing up, 
you know, and the AD is making more and the people that work around the athletic department, all the different offices are making more. And, you know, the coaches of the non-revenue sports, they certainly benefit when Oregon football has a good season. And that was in the days before guaranteed TV revenue. Oregon football wins a game, earns another national TV game, earns another big paycheck. You know, hey, the coaches of the other sports might get a little raise, except the actual players themselves aren't getting a cut of it. So, so there was always that sense of, like, none of this is really great. And the more you learn about it, the uglier it is. So, yeah, in my mind, I'd like, I'm a big believer in, in everyone getting a cut of the action. If, if your labor is going into this product, you should get a piece of that. And if you have success and, you know, your team does well, you have a big season and everyone else is benefiting, you should be benefiting too, while also providing what I do think – is a really important element of college athletics and something that does set the United States apart in a good way from almost every other country on earth, which is the ability for a lot of kids, men and women, in all sorts of different sports, that maybe get access to a college degree and to a type of education that they wouldn't have access to otherwise because of their athletic ability. Now, that shouldn't be the only avenue, but, but there is a lot of good that can come from it if we can keep this whole thing from completely unraveling because of how it's been historically mismanaged. John Strong, Fox Sports lead play-by-play announcer. It's called Hundreds of Games, Soccer Games. Uh, give me an idea, because you come up at Lake Oswego High School and you've, you, you started broadcasting games when nobody was listening, Laker broadcasting, calling football and basketball games, and then one day you grow up and you know, you're covering World Cup games and you're broadcasting on the big stage. What is that like to uh, have that arc or in that moment before, do they call it kickoff at a World Cup? Before they kick, uh, what what are you thinking? You know, it's funny. I did an interview once on the Fox affiliate at Milwaukee, and it, the guy that interviewed me did the same thing. Like, do they call it a kickoff in soccer? It's like, yeah, do they do. Don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> it's neat. So I, and I'm sitting in my office right now downstairs, and I'm kind of in the middle of, of redoing it. But I have intentionally selected mementos sort of of my life around me. So to my right, I've got two, they seem to be hung up, but two large size canvas prints of panoramic photos that I took just on my phone from my vantage point at the two world men's World Cup finals that I've called, like of the whole stadium scene. But I also around me have all sorts of, I got like my collection of Dairy Queen Blazers glasses from the early <laughs> 90s, and I've got little mementos from grandparents and my first OSAA press pass from Laker Broadcasting when I was a senior in high school, and 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 I do it all intentionally from a sense of, man, this like it's really cool what I've been able to do, and I'm very lucky about that. It's important that I don't get caught up in thinking that the pictures to my right, which is the World Cup Finals, like that's normal. I deserve that. Like that's, and, and be reminded of where I've come from and the work that I've put in and be appreciative of all the little things because absolutely, and, and you know, the two things I have with me at those World Cups, they're in the, it's not really a booth, it's a tribunal, but I've got a folder that I got on a tour of the Rose Garden my sophomore year of high school. It's like a, a little folder with a Blazers basketball um, cover to it. And then sitting on my left is my buddy Eric that I've known since middle school, who comes along as our statter and spot, uh, spotter statistician assistant. And, and I love having those two things with me, A, because I trust Eric with my life if he puts something in front of me, 
B, because I like to be reminded with that folder of like this journey that I've taken. So it's neat. It's special. I've got the potential for some amazing things in the next couple of years, but also, you know, as you like to say, it's not show friends, it's show business. And if it all gets taken away from me tomorrow, well, shoot, at least I got to do it. You're not, you're never as good or as bad as they say. Remember that. Mm-hmm. And I need to, I need to get you a bobblehead doll so you can take it with you to the next World Cup final and you can sit it next to you. I have your bobblehead doll. Right. Take it with it you. Why isn't it in Russia with you or, or, uh, or, you know, where was the other one? I don't want to have to have that conversation with the dude at customs. That's too much effort. <laughs> All right. So give me an idea when you're in those countries for the World Cup, do you get to like tour around or is, Fox taking you from hotel to venue, high security. We don't want, like, Vladimir Putin grabbing you. Uh, it kind of depends. So, like, in Russia, there was very much a sense of, like, please, 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 whatever you do, don't just go wander around. If you're going to go somewhere, go with someone or make sure that we know where you are. And this was, you know, 2018 and 2017. Um, in saying that, I still got to see a lot of Russia, and that was still a really cool moment the first night we were there for the World Cup, and we had just arrived, and I went for a walk around Moscow with a group of people, and I'm standing there in Red Square, and I'm standing there in front of St. Basil's Cathedral, and there's the Kremlin on the other side of the wall, and you're like, okay, this is Moscow, this is Russia, this is, this is a pretty interesting place for an American to be, particularly someone like me that loves history. And similarly in Qatar, you know, we could sort of go wander around, but we were also doing games every single day. So there was a necessary Groundhog Day-like existence of wake up, work out, eat some food, get some work done, hop in the car, head to the stadium, you know, drive home and sort of start the process over again, which is why last summer was so cool. We had the Women's World Cup in Australia, and Australia is an amazing country. Sydney is a incredibly easy city to get around. You know, if you're someone that maybe sort of scoffs at the notion of public transportation, visit Sydney, Australia. It is the most easily accessible and navigable big city I've ever been to in my life. And so I really was able to feel like I explored someplace that I'd always, always, always wanted to visit. And that's one of the neat things about this job. It's taken me around the country, and I've gotten to experience places around this country of ours that have been so enriching and enlightening. But I've also been able to go to some pretty amazing parts of the world, and, and hopefully that trend continues. That, and that's part of it of, you know, this sport and this job has taken me places that I had always dreamed of going. And, and that's to get paid to do that. That's your job. That's pretty special. What's uh, what's this next round of World Cup qualifying and the World Cup going to be like? And, uh, you know, in the soccer world, how excited are people about this? So I gave earlier this winter um, – I spoke to a group, U.S. Adult Soccer, and they basically run like adult amateur leagues and stuff, and they had their regional meeting up at one of the hotels at the airport. And these are people that, you know, work in soccer all the time. And I said to them, none of us have any clue, as much as we think we might, none of us have any clue what the summer of 2026 is going to be like and how much more so everyone else that isn't necessarily following this day-to-day like people like me. When the Men's World Cup comes to North America, and it's going, to be a, it's going to be a month and a half long. You know, when Johnny Infantino, the president of FIFA, says it's going to be like having a series of Super Bowls every single day, yes, that's hyperbole. Yes, that's the guy in charge of global soccer saying that, but he's not wrong. That is going to be an incredible summer. Think of it like when the U.S. has hosted Olympic Games, and we'll have the games in L.A. in 2028, 
except this is across the entire country, and it's for a month and a half. And to have the U.S. men's team playing a game in Seattle at Lumen Field, I would argue that is as significant a part of Paul Allen's legacy as the fact that the Seahawks stayed around and ended up winning a Super Bowl. Because that will put Seattle and the Pacific Northwest on a type of global stage that's just different to other stuff, to be hosting World Cup games and to have the U.S. there. So that summer is going to be amazing, and I think every single day the people that work in soccer are putting the work in now to maximize what that's going to be. And it will take over this country in a way that I think, is, as I said, is hard for those of us in soccer to really wrap our head around, let alone for people on the outside. Now, does it mean that the day after it ends, 100 million Americans are going to be diehard soccer fans and MLS is going to be getting NFL-type ratings? No, of course not. But for that period in time, that is going to feel like the most special thing to those of us that have labored in the shadows for years for the sake of soccer. It's going to be an incredible month and a half, and the fact that you know Fox has the rights and I stand to, to play a role in it um, is something I think about all the time and is incredibly exciting. All right, I found something out. Maybe uh, you can confirm this, but I am being told by sources that some of the World Cup teams that are attempting to qualify that will be playing in Seattle and then alternately in Southern California at different venues, uh, that there is a chance two teams are going to be, uh, I guess, what they call housed or practicing here in the Portland metropolitan area. Have you heard that yet? I would certainly hope so. And, and if Nike has any clue what they're doing, and of course they do, and by the way, and I've told people at Oregon this, if the University of Oregon has any clue what they're doing, and of course they do, they need to be host venues for these teams because you need to have some sort of a base camp. You need to have some sort of place to practice. Um, you need to have some sort of place to sort of have that training camp for two weeks before the World Cup. The facilities at the University of Oregon are world-class. They really, really are. That would be a beyond-perfect place, particularly for one of the Nike-affiliated teams, because the World Cup in the group stage, at least, is being set up regionally. They're trying to minimize that travel. So there will be teams, like the U.S. is going to base themselves in L.A. They play two games in L.A., one in Seattle. There will be other teams, other nations, that know they're going to be on the West Coast, because you've got Seattle, you've got Vancouver, you've got Santa Clara, California, and you've got L.A. Eugene and or Portland at the Nike campus would be beyond perfect places. And then you also have all that ancillary, you know, it's like a, a traveling circus that follows these teams around with fans and media. And those would be things that I would highly encourage, not that they need the encouraging because people know this stuff. But that would be such a cool thing because it would elevate the brand of Portland. It would elevate the brand of the University of Oregon just to have those shots that go around the world of these teams, you know, in practice and those sorts of things. So that's absolutely something that – I expect is on people's radars now. Yeah, I heard that. I heard one of the base camp, you had the word, that they were going to set up base camp for two teams in the Portland metropolitan area. I guess that was at least the preliminary plan. Eugene's not a bad idea either. Uh, Strong, um, you know, we talk, I saw an interview, uh, Jerry Seinfeld was doing comedians in cars drinking coffee. He did this episode with Trevor Noah. And, you know, Seinfeld was saying, hey, football's our sport. Real American football is the sport. And 100 million people watch the Super Bowl. And Trevor Noah came back and said 400 million watch a Premier League game. Like, you know, it. give us an idea. Like, you know, our sport moving into London, football saying they're going to play more games in Europe. Is that moving the needle over there? Or are they still going to go, yeah, 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 but, uh, 
you know, uh, football is the real sport. I think it's fascinating because it's happening both ways. So, by the way, tomorrow night in Las Vegas at Allegiant Stadium, the NRL, which is the National Rugby League from Australia, they have a doubleheader of games. It's like their opening weekend of games of the season. And they brought four of the teams over, including the three-time defending champions. And they're doing a doubleheader in Las Vegas. It's going to be on FS1 tomorrow night. And they're, they're going all in on this. And they brought in all sorts of NFL players. Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey are a part of this. Russell Crowe narrated a video that they put out like explaining the rules of, of rugby league. So this stuff cuts both ways, for sure. As much as the NFL is trying to grow internationally, and you're going to have a game in Brazil this coming year, you have a game in Spain they're planning, expanding into Germany in addition to, to London, other sports are trying to come the other way. And there's the globalization of sports here, which I think is really fascinating because it is. The, the Super Bowl and the NFL itself is very popular overseas when you talk about expats. So that's a lot of the fans that would come to an NFL game in London is American expats. Or, you know, you do have a curiosity factor. In fact, I'll tell you, I was in Adelaide, Australia last summer, and Adelaide had a very, like, Albany Corvallis-type feel, Central Willamette Valley-type feel to it. It's, it's the fifth biggest city in Australia. And we were in a little neighborhood cafe across the street from the stadium, and I had an Oregon Ducks hat on, and our server, Australian born and bred, immediately is like, oh, that's the Ducks. And we start talking football. He's a massive Philadelphia Eagles fan. So there is an element to this American pop culture. And I can tell you from my travels, whatever people around the world think of our government, our politics, American popular culture soft power remains undefeated. And the allure of the United States and, and sort of the razzmatazz is the word they love to use in England of the NFL there's a heavy curiosity factor. It is also, to most people around the world, American football, an incredibly strange, bizarre sport that makes zero sense to anyone. And who's to say who's wrong in that way? We would see the same about watching rugby, and we're like, what on earth is this? And it's an immensely popular sport. So you know, are we going to get to a point where the Super Bowl even scratches the surface of rivaling a big Premier League game a UEFA Champions League game, a World Cup? No, I don't think we are because you're talking about centuries of fandom. But the NFL is all in on expanding internationally in the same way as a lot of other sports are. In fact, last summer, one of the big things in the U.S. was they launched a professional cricket league. Most of the teams were based in Texas, but cricket is the most popular sport in the Indian subcontinent with a couple of billion people there that love that sport, and they were trying to grow in the U.S. So all of this stuff is going back and forth at the same time. John Strong, the voice of American soccer and an expert on the razzmatazz of Europe. Thank you, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Have a great weekend, and we'll catch up shortly. I'm pleased to have chewed up 20 minutes of your Friday show. You're welcome. I love it. I was fascinated. Uh, hey, I appreciate you, man. I'll get See you another button. bobblehead doll so you have some bookends. Love, All right, it. There, love it. There he goes, John Strong, who used to be in Stephen's seat. His first job out of college, he couldn't get a job. We said, okay, come on in, we'll let you answer some phones. He ends up running the thing and on his way, next thing you know, Fox hires him away. It happens. You know, transfer portal, NIL, alive and well, even then. Our big splash is coming up. We got John Papadakis, the singing linebacker, coming up top of the hour. He owned a Greek restaurant that was wildly popular with the USC football crowd. Pete Carroll would stop there and 
the uh, USC players would come there on recruiting visits, and he is the father of Petros Papadakis, the Fox broadcaster. It's a very Fox-heavy show today with John Strong, with the lead soccer play-by-play announcer for Fox on earlier, and that, and then the father of Petros Papadakis on. Felt like maybe we should have John Strong's dad on the show. I don't know, you know, uh, go go for full circle with that stuff. Um, Stephen, I never answered your question. That's okay. I, I it was totally my fault. I understood. Uh, yeah, my question. <laughs> my question. We were just up against the thing, and then I was going to have to cut into John Stone's yeah, time. Usually, I'm more aware about that thing. I just wasn't paying attention. That's a, that's on me. It's a Friday, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, whatever. But uh, yeah, no, I value I, your opinion. I was asking you. Uh, you know, we're already going to the 12 team playoff, and I know we all, all as fans want what's best for college football. But College Football is already talking about making it a 14 or a 16-team playoff before we even see how the 12-team works out. Do you have a problem with that? Because I do. They have figured out, because you're, you're thinking out of, of it from like an equity and a fan standpoint, but they've figured out that you know ESPN wants a few more games and there's a little more money, and if they can add automatic qualifier spots, see, that's why they're going from 12 to 14. They, they know, hey, we can add some ad- automatic qualifier spots, to the field that we can guarantee that we're going to get in on the payday. ESPN's not saying we'll give you more money. Their original deal was, I think it was $1.4 billion that they were offering for the playoff. It was on the low end. Then they all of a sudden said, well, we'll go from 12 to 14, and guess what? We'll add automatic qualifiers, and therefore we will guarantee that we get our slice of the pie and a bigger slice of the pie. So that's totally about, not about equity. It's not about the field. It's not about making the playoff better. It's about the SEC and the Big Ten going, if we add teams, that's two more automatic qualifiers we can get. And guess what? We can say with a straight face, we're entitled to them. Because maybe 12 is perfect and we just don't know and then we're going to get rid of it already before we start. It's not even about what's right or what works. John Papadakis, the singing linebacker, is next. I encourage you to be here for it. John Papadakis, one of my favorite people to have on the show. This is a guy who played football at USC, ran restaurants, became a father who had watched his son Petros go on to become a terrific person and broadcaster. I saw some news, like John Papadakis got in the L.A. Sports Walk of Fame. He is a big deal. The former USC linebacker and the guy known as the singing linebacker now has a new album out. I saw this and I thought, I got to get him on the show. The name of the album is When. So when you go to YouTube, look for John Papadakis. Or when you go online on Spotify, look for John Papadakis. Check out his work. This is a guy who, in 1969 and 1970, played in what we all know as the Pac-12. Joining us now, John Papadakis, the singing linebacker. How are you, my friend? Hey, good. Thank you very much. And thank you for mentioning the Pac-12 because, you know, it's gone now and and I dearly loved, you know, going to those places. They were every year it was an emotional uh, 
approach to every game simply because of the time and place. You were a, a defensive standout at USC. You were in that Sam Bam Cunningham era, that that uh, terrific story of you know playing the game at Alabama. But what, in general, what was it like to play at USC in that era? It was very competitive. Uh, we scrimmaged every day. We had 30 days of spring practice. Every day was a scrimmage. There was no lead up to it. There was no time in shorts. There were no days off. And it was the survival of the fittest. The most terrific injuries came in the spring when it was all out all the time. But that's when we stood up. As a high school recruit, I went to a spring practice and saw O.J. Simpson, who was a junior college transfer, and um, as a receiver. He came in as a receiver. They put him at tailback because of his size and his speed. And um, they sent him seven times into the line, seven times into the middle of the defense, just to test his courage. And he reacted well to it. And they found their tailback that day. That's how it was. It was to see what you have to give and see how far you can, um, how far you can go. What? So uh, that's what it was like to play it. Though that's I played on probably one of the greatest defenses USC ever. Well, the best they ever had called the Wild Bunch. That was a great experience because we were unyielding. You know, we didn't we didn't give up yardage. We didn't give up first downs. We took pride in it. So it wasn't a, a scoring contest like it is now. Yeah, a lot of points now. When, uh, toughest guy you ever had to tackle that wasn't on your team in a practice? Bobby Moore. Ahmad Rashad is now. His name is Ahmad Rashad now. Both yeah. games, our junior and senior year, both both times we collided, I knocked him out of the game. But I had to come out too. It was, <laughs> you know, he was a big guy. He wasn't small. He was about six two and a half, six three, two twenty five, and he could really move. And he brought it. There were there wasn't a tailback that hard hitting on the West Coast at that time. No wonder he was so successful as a as, as a split end because to him those DBs were just mosquitoes that he, yeah. that, he that he whacked. Yeah, we were talking about it yesterday on the show. We were saying, well, who's the greatest? receiver to ever play at Oregon and we went through a bunch of guys and then we went gosh can we count Bobby Moore can we count Ahmad Rashad as a receiver because he played there in the NFL but I have to imagine that um, yeah by the time he got to the NFL he was running in space and he's probably enjoying it no he's uh he was just a tough guy you know he brought it you know when you're a linebacker and you want to deliver the blow and when someone you know uh, returns the favor you have respect for them. John Papadakis, the singing linebacker. I want to talk about your album. Uh, it's called When. It's out now, and we're going to get to it. But in order to get there, I have to I have to kind of get the path of how you ended up singing. So let's go back to, like, after your career. Tell me about the ta- the Taverna. Like, what was... What, the Taverna what was... was all music and all fun and glory all the time. We had the chicken sink theory of entertainment. You know, we had a tap dancers and belly dancers and I had a, a violinist who played with Ella Fitzgerald and Tony Bennett he was 80 years old Tony Doria and I, I had them coming out at different times in the evening and entertaining 
in a way where the, I built the evening, you know, around the entertainment and, of course, the, the wonderful hospitable service. The spirit of the place emerged, just like it does in a home when you have a great, you know, dinner party at home. And uh, the love of every, everything you love is expressed to your guests. And that's what we did. We, we expressed our, our love of the occasion pleasing them. It's a great thing to serve people. You know your purpose. You know, yeah. people, who, people who are in that business who don't care really to serve people, they end up looking like Swiss cheese. They got holes in them because they, it doesn't fulfill them to please people. Mm. With me, it, it, and of course, that's why I sing. You know, I want people to feel the same way about the lyrics and the story that I'm telling that I do, and I want to share it. So was there a first time that you started singing, or are you just kind of serving as the host? And We used, you know, to, sing in the we used to sing in the restaurant all the time. I remember the great opera star Beverly Sills used to come in, and the first time she came in, she was sitting at a table, and I was standing at a table next to her singing to a group. It was a birthday or some type of celebration, but we would sing. We wouldn't sing happy birthday. We'd sing, you know, in Greek something, or we'd sing some Sinatra or Bobby Darin song. And she, I was finished singing, and she grabbed my sleeve. She said, John, she said, that's good. <laughs> I said, <laughs> Beverly, I put my hand out, kind of gestured toward her. I said, Beverly, she stood up and sang an aria. She stood up in that damn restaurant in San Pedro and sang an aria. And every time she'd come in after that, when she'd come to the West Coast, she'd come to the Taverna, and she would sing an aria. I mean, what, you know, the customers were flabbergasted. Yeah. The same way one time when Rod Steiger ended up standing on a table telling everybody a joke. Another time Arnold Palmer's standing on a big round table in a party of 10 dancing. I put a belly dancer on top of the table, and he joined her. <laughs> great memories, you know, great people. But we got the same reaction from everybody, not just notable people. We, we, uh, you know, the thing was to bring them all to the same place together. I and love that. When you when you're able to do that, there's a communal feeling of goodness that permeates the place, and it feels real good. You walking on air. That restaurant, all right, so you talk about uh, that era, you know, eventually it comes to an end, but, you know, 2010 or so, you're, you know, 1973 to 2010, as I remember, um, you have you have the end of that. Was that painful? Well, I had, I had a disease. I needed an operation, and I really didn't know what, it scared me to the, well, I really didn't know what my future was. Yeah. And I said, you know, I had a property business going at the same time, and and it was uh, a better path for me to go forward. Yeah. And 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 the, the disease came up all of a sudden on me, so it was, uh, you know, I figured it's a message, and uh, devote myself to some other things, and spend more time at home. Etc. Because the restaurant business is very demanding, and you know when you have that ambition to please people, you, you it just juices you up, and you go on it. And sometimes you don't have as much uh, for everybody else in your direct family. And I wanted to be more involved with my family, 
and I and it's been very fulfilling that I that I I've been able to do that. Well, I'm just I, writing I, down the little league schedule. I got two grandsons in little leagues, you know, and I'm not going to miss it. I'm not going to miss one game. I could tell. I you love that. that. I love that. Uh, John Papadakis. Well, you do. You do. I wrote you today that I love yeah. your approach to people because you pay real close attention to what they give themselves to. Yeah, I do. And and you're right about kind of that energy output. I think about that from the standpoint of this radio show. You know, I I give three hours of that every day, Monday through Friday, and I have to be really intentional to make sure that my three daughters get that energy as well, because at the end of the show, sometimes I don't feel like talking, at, you know, come six o'clock. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes they don't even need you talking as you do on the radio. They just need you there. Right. They we were, need they were, you to know you there. We were playing charades yesterday after the show, after dinner, and I was like, this is, okay, this is nice. This is good. Uh, John Papadakis with us, the singing linebacker. Um, I'm going to play some of your songs coming up, and I want you to talk about them, but before I I get there, before I get there, USC and the restaurant, how did those things come together? Because I know Pete Carroll in that era used to come into the restaurant. What was that like? Pete, Pete Carroll recognized, he came in. When he first got the job, he said, I've heard about you. At that time, Paul Hackett had done a couple of recruiting parties. They were very successful under the guidance of Ed Orgeron, who was his recruiting coordinator. And Ed Orgeron was the only holdover to Pete Carroll's staff. And he told Pete, he said, if you want to do your recruiting, you do it. You come down here and meet this man. So he came down and he asked me what he thought, what I thought he should do. I told him, you know, possess the ball and play defense. Put your best people on defense. Deny the deny the line of scrimmage. He said, that's my plan. That's who I am. I said, great, then we're going to get along well together. He said, I want to do all my recruiting here. I said, I had an epiphany because I'm 50 years old at the time. I've been in the restaurant for a good 27 years. And I never had a coach figure that out yet except for Ed Orgeron. And that was just a couple times. So with Pete, all those kids who became All-Americans and Heisman Trophy winners and everything, they all committed there at the Taverna. It was written about in the New York Times. It was written about in the Denver Post, but never in the L.A. papers because they were afraid there would be some type of suspicion, you know, of yeah. recruiting violations and this and that. But never, yeah. never was because it was, as, it was as right as rain. It was as clean as it can be. Well, think about it now. I mean, today the NCAA comes out and says, hey, we're not going to pursue any NIL violations. They're just, you know, it's the Wild West now. I mean, the the rails are off the thing. I'd be in jail every day because the judge would say, did you kiss that lady? I'd say, yes. They'd say, did you kiss that man? I'd say, yes. (laughs) Because, you know, we we had a love fest down there people were uh, hugging each other and they were spirited and so the trojan spirit met the greek spirit out there on the plains and you know uh glory was revived and they went on to attract the best players in the country for we did it for a good eight or nine years as long as pete was there all right i'm going to play some of your songs on the new album it's called when and you can find it on youtube and spotify wherever you find good music this song is called this is the lead uh, track. Like It is called When. What do I need to know about When? When is an original song, the only original song on the island. Lou Forestieri writes the music and I write the lyrics. And it's a ballad. It's about regrets in life and relationships. And I think any, anyone uh, who's been in a relationship will relate to it. All right, I want to play just a, a bit of it here. Here's When, John Papadakis. When 
did you start to see right through me? When did you start to pretend? Why didn't you keep your face on? When will these feelings end? I could see that song playing in the background on a on a romantic evening, or maybe in the background as you're having dinner. Is that where it's that's appropriate? De- it's definitely, it's definitely got a Broadway style to it. I love that. All right, here, here's another one. Just in time. What do I need to know about just in time? It's from a, it's from a, a play called The Bells Are Ringing, and uh, Dean Martin starred in the movie and made the song famous in films in early '60s, I think. Do you find yourself? Do you find yourself? Gra- do you find yourself gravitating towards Dean Martin songs? I love Dean Martin. I love his interpretations. He had a very skillful voice, but he didn't push it that much, you know. He didn't try to push it. He didn't have to. He just weaved it around the lyrics. All right, here's Just In Time from John Papadakis on the When album. Just in time, you got me just in time, before you came by time. I love that. All right, that's my new favorite right there. Papadakis doing Dean Martin. I love that. That song's got a great ending. I'm real proud of the way we finished that one off. Listen to that later on, please. I will. I will. What's that recording process like? I... You know, I know you sent me a video uh, just before the show saying, hey, here's what it was. But what was that process like for you? You're, you're a former athlete. The video I sent you yeah. just piano and voice. That's unique. We do that at the same time. But the, the process of, of establishing first how you want to do the song, and then you have to create an arrangement through a composer. My composer is Lou Forestieri. He composes the arrangements. Decide how many pieces are going to be in it. Most of my stuff has seven pieces in it. A lot of it just has three or four, but and once the once you establish that, you have to record the tracks. That's the instrumental part of the song. When you you don't do the vocals, you'd think that you sit there in the middle of them and sing, right? Among right. the band, that's how you record. You don't. You record later by coming into the studio and you're alone in the studio with your headphones on and you're listening to the tracks and singing to them. All right. And that's the, and then the engineer goes back and forth and back and forth and you know you might sing the same same song a great number of times just trying to uh, weed out the impurities in it or you know a phrase that isn't as uh, homogeneous as with the others etc anyway it's it's lengthy and it goes but i try to get as much in as i can i've got a pretty strong attitude when i you know record and i go for it and I feel it, you know, too. And it's it's great to record because it's all silence but that music in your ears. And that's a comfort because all I have to do is follow it. All right, but you're a guy who feeds off the energy of people. So is that a challenge for you when you're alone in the studio? No, because you can communicate your deep feeling for the lyrics. And you do it in a, in a way where you're 
less you feel less vulnerable than in front of people. It's intimate. And that's why you have to trust your engineer and whoever's helping him produce so that, you know, you feel comfortable enough to really delve inside and, and bring out the right thing in the lyrics. All right. This next song is They Didn't Believe in Me. I want oh, to say. Oh, boy, I love that. That's a ballad, is, but to beat ballads. Isn't this Sinatra, like Sinatra? Of, yeah. Or not theater. Wow. All right. So here it is. John Papadakis, They Didn't Believe in Me from the When album. And when I told them How beautiful you are They didn't believe me that's my new favorite. That that's that's the winner. That's they it. didn't believe me. It's a beautiful song. Bill um, Bill Charlotte and Tony Bennett won a Grammy um, for that song, and they put it on an album of Jerome Kern songs. Jerome Kern wrote that song, and believe it or not, Frank Sinatra used to sing in the early '40s to the. Bobby Sox gals at the Paramount where he first became famous. It was a signature I want, I, for him. I want to say that song came out like World War One. Like, that's an old song. Oh, it's got to be 100 years old. Jerome Kern wrote in the 20s, I think, or earlier. Yeah. Anyway, you know, a lot of this music, there's a song in there by Al Jolson called Quarter to Nine, and we gave it a Latin soul. And, uh, you know, I loved it. He was in a movie with Ruby Keeler, who was uh, Al Jolson's wife, by the way, and he made a, a musical called Quarter to Nine, and that was about 90 years ago. And I was captured with the song because of the opening. You know, the opening words are, life begins when somebody's eyes look into your own. How many songs start like that? Mm-hmm. I, and you I want gotta... to sing those lyrics. You don't want to sing those lyrics, and you want to grab an audience with them. And then you want to deliver the rest of the song. And it John, was a very Lou Forestieri gave a great arrangement to that song. I I got a few more of these I want to play here. In the wee small hours of the morning, John now Papadakis. That, that when the sun is high in the afternoon sky, you can always find something to do. But from dusk till dawn, as time moves on, something happens to you. I go Sinatra to that. I think of Frank Sinatra there, too. Now I think of John Papadakis. You're turning me on playing all this stuff. I'm telling you, I love, you know, I, I, the song mean a lot to me and, you know, hearing them like that makes me happy thank you well johnny mathis did that as well didn't he yeah he did it's a great song it's a song that was a landmark song for sinatra he put out yeah. a, an album a famous album cover of him a painting of him standing by a, a, a spotlight or a, you know street lamp 
smoking a cigarette with a right. hat on and, all, and um, wandering around early in the morning. And I remember it as a kid, you know, in my parents' album collection. And there's a there's a little I mean, there's some style in doing a cover, too, because you're putting your own imprint, your own fingerprint, your own voice, your own interpretation on these songs as well. It's an artistic endeavor that has a that you can paint very broad strokes with if you just understand your own message and what you, how you want to portray it. You know, if you you know how you want to give it, then it, it you get inspired in different ways. That's how you. That's how I choose what songs I want to sing. Sunday in New York. How about that, that one? That one takes off. That one takes off. All right, here we go. New York on Sunday, big city. Taking a nap, slow down. It's Sunday, life's all. <laughs> I love it. I love that. It's a great. It's a great song from a great movie called Sunday in New York with Jane Fonda and uh, Cliff Robertson. I'm trying to think of the other main actor. I can't think of his name. A great Australian, Rod Taylor. Wow. Um, and uh, I always love the music. Peter Nero who appears in the movie playing his music, uh, wrote the uh, wrote the, the, the song. I think it won an Academy Award for Best Song. If it didn't, it should have. All right. I'm going to do, one... do one. killer rendition of it. One more. Sammy Davis Jr. did this song. I know uh, the folks who live on the hill. This is... Oh, I, th that's us. <laughs> We've been in the same house for 45 years, and it's on a hill. All right. Here's John Papadakis. You can you can hear this on the When album. Grab it on YouTube, Spotify, wherever you listen to your music. Here's The Folks Who Live on the Hill. Many men with lofty aims Strive for wealth and gold Other men play smaller games Being simpler souls I am of the latter brand all I want to do is find a spot of land and live there with you. That is smooth. I love those old songs because they have verses to begin the song. You know, the next line on that song is, Someday we'll build a home on a hilltop high you know like that and talking about living on the hill and they always had poetry that that preceded the message and draws everybody into the meaning of the song very classy i love that are you doing another concert i know you did one uh not I'm, too long ago i'm in the course of setting one up now possibly may 9th in hollywood at the catalina jazz club that's where i frequent most and We've had a lot of good uh, blowouts there, and uh, I feel comfortable there, too. I need to come see one of these performances in person. <laughs> You'd enjoy it. It's, right. it's, it's a great crowd. You know, some of the best people from my restaurant years come still, and uh, 
there's a lot of mutual appreciation to go around. It's like every every concert's been like a New Year's Eve. I love that. John Papadakis, the album is when it's out. I, you can hear it on YouTube, Spotify, wherever you listen to your music. Find it. The Singing Linebacker, I appreciate you coming on, John. Thanks for your friendship. Thanks a million. Bye-bye. There he goes. His son, Petros, you can catch him on Fox Football Broadcasts. But uh, the singing linebacker, you can find him on YouTube. Leave it here. Shohei Otani caused, caused a stir like a day, day and a half ago when he announced through an interpreter that he is married. Everybody freaking out about this. Um, it, and the interpretation, because there's something lost in translation always, is funny because he, he basically told reporters through the interpreter, that she is, quote, a normal Japanese woman, end quote, and he has known her for three to four years. And so, like, I don't know what he's supposed to say, but by normal, he meant not a celebrity. He did not say normal. People who listened to the translation said, you know, what he was saying is his wife's not in show business. In other words, he wants people to leave her alone. I also think it was kind of the equivalent of the modern-day Ah, you wouldn't know her. She goes to a different school that Shohei was trotting out. Um, the translation's never going to make this normal, but um, it beats the time when uh, Hideki Matsui sketched a drawing of his wife and said, you know, I'm married and this is who I'm married to, instead of talking about it through an interpreter. But I, I think, like, if you were if you were Shohei in that moment, you would have had an opportunity to... Um, kind of win the day so to speak like he could have said she's uh she's a unicorn she's the real unicorn like he could have said that and the translator would have said it and he would have got home and then his wife would have said i heard what you said about me that was so awesome but he's very um he's very polite and and i think part of his stardom is rooted a little bit in the mystery because he's not one of these players who's out talking about himself nonstop Look at what I have. Follow me on the gram. Here's what I have. You know, he's not doing that. So, you know, he's he's basically saying, my wife is a regular human being, and I've known her for a while, and that's the update and end of story. So um, there you go. Non-celebrity is what he meant. Not normal. And I don't, I don't know. She probably doesn't care. But I also think we're going to find out Probably uh, when uh, page six gets a hold of this story, we're going to find out a lot more about her. Um, I'm interested in Shohei because he is the face of baseball right now. Apologies to Mike Trout or whoever else you would nominate as suit for superstardom in Major League Baseball at this time. Uh, Otani has the big contract. He's got the stage. He's not even going to pitch this season because of the injury to his arm. He still might he still might be the MVP of Major League Baseball. And and then when he does pitch, look out. Like, you know, he could do some things that we have never seen star players in baseball do when it comes to winning MVPs and whatnot, should he stay healthy. Uh fun to watch that. Another story that caught my eye, Adam Schefter's making rounds talking about the 49ers in the twenty seventeen draft. I don't know if you've heard this, but Patrick Mahomes comes out in the twenty seventeen draft. And apparently the 49ers at the time did not 
even do work on him in the combine or scouting him. Remember, he had the injury, and they never, they didn't even have a file on anybody in the 2017 draft. Uh, they did have one quarterback that they were interested in, but the I guess the the story that Schefter's telling is that the 49ers believed that they were going to get Kirk Cousins. He was going to leave Washington. The 49ers thought they were getting him. They basically said, why should we do any work in the 2017 draft on um, guys like Deshaun Watson and and Patrick Mahomes because we're going to uh, we're going to end up with Kirk Cousins and I guess that was the plan and then and then of course the Niners in that draft move up and take C.J. Bathard and they draft him like in the third or fourth round they move up to get him and then he doesn't end up playing for them and because they lose him to Jacksonville the 49ers pick up a compensatory pick for losing Bathard. And guess who they draft with the compensatory pick? Steven, do you have any guesses? Uh, Brock Purdy. Brock Purdy is the compensatory pick. Mm. And the Niners end up with Brock Purdy after all of that. Kirk Cousins don't draft, and, and later they take Trey Lance, trade for Jimmy Garoppolo, all of that stuff. You know, they did all that stuff, and they end up with the compensatory pick that they got for the Bethard going to the Jaguars. And that's how they end up with Brock Purdy. So they they lucked out because they didn't do any uh, you know background on any of the quarterbacks. Right. Like... But they ended up because the the Patriots called them in that 2017 offseason and say, hey, we need to unload Garoppolo, and they'll we'll take a second round pick for him. And so they end up with Garoppolo and and C.J. Bathard, and and then they lose him to the Jacksonville. Garoppolo turns out to be Garoppolo underwhelmed with him in the end and they even though as they're making plans for Trey Lance sometimes it's like Garth Brooks sings about those unanswered prayers you know it's it sometimes it's like you can do all the work but the guy that you're going to get and the guy that's going to take you to the Super Bowl and the guy that you're ultimately going to hand the keys to is the guy that you're not even thinking about with the pick that you know was a compensatory pick at the end of the draft last pick tagged on Mr. Irrelevant and that's how they end up with the quarterback that they get. Coming up at the top of the hour, Anna will be here for the 5 at 5. Yesterday we made her do six stories. Did you catch that? I, th- I did. I, I thought so, but I didn't, you know. I feel like she always has like she always has a 5B, so yes. I kind of always want to hear what the what's on the, you know, what she leaves out. She almost never will come into the studio and say, "Hey, what's happening?" Like never ever do that she's and never yesterday- like i have four john i need one no. more story she sometimes will come in and say hey i have eight stories and you know she might not be listening in hour one or whatever you know she's running around with kids or whatever and so she not might might not be listening to the show at, and so she'll say um i don't know what you talked about in hour one but and sometimes we have talked about something and she'll bring it up and i'll go yeah but you were talking about that like an hour and a half ago so yeah just put it in there anyway you know, because I don't anticipate everybody sitting here for three hours and, you know, the show can have some overlap. And plus, there's a different take on it when she's introducing it sometimes. So but yesterday I knew that I I messed up because she said I have six stories and she kind of pitched them to me and I picked my favorite five. And then I noticed I played number five and she kind of looked at me funny and I thought. 
ah, she just did all the stories we talked about, but she had an extra one in the bag of tricks. So she'll uh, she'll come prepared. I think I did two number fours on yesterday's show. And that only happens because I'm so, you know, immersed in what is happening that I am not counting while I'm doing it. That's the only reason it happens. And I know I can count to five. All right, leave it here. You got the bald face trip. I was watching some Pac-12 women's basketball last night. Oregon State women almost did it. Almost against number four Stanford. But Cameron Brink, handful. 23 rebounds, 25 points. Cameron Brink, uh, local kid, uh, taking it out on Oregon State. But I, I think, look, a couple things here. Reagan Beers, Oregon State's post player, has not played since being smashed in the face by UCLA a couple of weeks ago. She was on the bench last night. Can't wait to see her back on the court. I think Oregon State fans probably want her back on the court as well. Hope she's going to be there in time for the Pac-12 Women's Tournament next week in Vegas. Try to get an update there. But Oregon State gave it all it had last night. And Talia von Olhoffen uh, scored a career high. She, uh, at the end of the game, just uh, left the court in tears as she was knocked around. And and uh, Stanford's just very physical, especially with Brink and good. But uh, Oregon State is going to be so much fun to watch when Reagan Beers comes back. It's just not the kind of game that they can win without her. They can they can beat teams without Reagan Beers, but they need her for a team that's got a Cameron Brink inside. That you know, otherwise you're looking at uh, you know 23 rebounds for one player. It's just too much. Uh, it did strike me that Stanford coach Tara Vanderveer, who won. The outright conference championship clinched the conference championship for the regular season last night in Corvallis. She's been at Stanford for 38 seasons. 38 seasons. She has won or shared the conference championship 26 times, including this season. 26 times in 38 seasons. Now, John Wooden was at UCLA for 27 years, 27 seasons. He won or shared first place 15 times. Is Tara Vanderveer, who is 70, getting enough ink for what she has done? I know, I know, people are saying all the way, all-time win total this season. All, I just kind of wonder if this March is going to be her March. Stanford's going to be good. Cameron Brink is great. They will end up in the Portland Regional, no doubt. Stanford will play deep in this tournament. Will they win the conference tournament in Vegas? I don't know. They got knocked out last year. Washington State women won the tournament last year. It was uh, just an electric finish. But I think, you know, amongst the chatter about the demise of the Pac-12, in the history of the conference, we hear people talking about Bill Walton and John Wooden and O.J. Simpson and, you know, great John Elway. And But you have Tara Vanderveer with Final Fours, National and Olympic teams. Um, the only question is that, you know, she hasn't put more assistance from her staff on other teams. The coaching tree at, at Stanford is not extended in the way it does in the men's game. But you talk about 38 seasons, 26 conference championships, I was struck last night in watching the end of the game. They kept showing shots of her on the bench. 
like I've watched her for a long time, and I mean this with all due respect, she's getting up there, right? She's 70, and she's on the bench coaching basketball. And I'm looking at the ACC and Stanford going to the ACC. I can't think she wants any part of traveling around the ACC footprint at 70, given what she has done at Stanford. I just don't, I don't know if she gets enough cred. I might track her down at the women's tournament next week and talk with her and maybe try to get her on the show. I, I just think she's such a good story, and I think this March is going to belong to her. And we're in March. It's March 1. Uh, interesting to kind of think about that. Secondarily, in basketball, and Stephen, I want your take on this one. LeBron James is about to do something that, you know, others have not done. He is going to cross 40,000 points tomorrow. He needs nine points. Father time, about to take another loss. He will be the first NBA player to reach 40,000 points. He's the all-time leading scorer. He should get it. Lakers are hosting the Nuggets Saturday. He has scored at least nine points in uh, every one of his last 762 games that count, including the playoffs. And uh, I saw him score nine points once, exactly nine, in his debut game at what was then the uh, Rose Garden Arena. First time he played in Portland, he scored nine points. And I was like, LeBron, try Leon. Uh, But he's, you know, 39 years old. Big moment. He said, uh, you know, this is a big moment for him and his career, of course, but it's not the the, the greatest thing that's ever happened. Um, what's your take on LeBron getting to 40,000? How big of a milestone? How much should that be celebrated? Yeah, I think it should be somewhat celebrated. I mean, he already is the all-time leading scorer, so you know, we already kind of gave him that celebration. So now everything on this is just kind of, you know, the, the icing on the cake, so to speak, for LeBron. But um, I do think that... And I'm guilty of this, too, of just not liking some of the stuff he says off the court and some of the stuff he does. Like, he's not a bad person, but just some of the stuff he does, it it rubs people the wrong way. And we do hate on him for that. And then on the court, we don't give him as much love as he probably should. Because, I mean, the guy has been awesome since he came into the league. With all that pressure that came onto him, he has exceeded all those expectations. Um, You know, he's very rarely been hurt where he's missed a lot of games. Uh, you know, he he's up in over twenty seasons in the NBA. He's never averaged less than twenty points a game. Uh, he's you know barely had a couple seasons where he's twenty five. That's really the lowest besides his rookie year. But he's never averaged more than thirty only three times. So it's not as if like he's had these outstanding years where it's like oh that's out of the ordinary. He, like he has been consistent for twenty years in the NBA, and I think like that's consistently awesome. Great. Yes, consistently like, yeah. like a top yeah. top three player in the NBA every year. And I think that. We don't talk about that enough. Like, even me as myself, like, I'm a LeBron hater, but, man, like, I understand the greatness of him on the actual court and how he has changed the game and how he's changed his game. Because remember, Johnny, he wasn't really, like, a great shooter coming into the league, and that was always a question. It took him about, you know, the end of his 20s to really become a consistent outside shooter. And now he's, like, a really good three-point shooter, shooting, you know, uh, 40% from three, over 40% from three on, you know, five-and-a-half shots. So, like, he's turned into a really good shooter. He's, you know, revolutionized his game. He, he revolutionized the NBA, changed his game. Uh, I think he probably deserves a little more credit than we actually right. give him. The other night, the Lakers are down and rally late in the game. Biggest comeback in LeBron's history. LeBron himself outscored the Clippers 19-16 to in the fourth quarter. After the game, this is what he said. This is the largest fourth quarter comeback in your career. How did you do it? Uh, keep the main thing the main thing. Keep executing. 
Uh, the game is not ever, ever over until it's uh, double zeros, which we see up there. So we just kept fighting, kept getting defensive stops, made some shots. The main thing, the main thing. I love that. <laughs> Keep the main thing, the main thing. Simple. Keep it simple. Four-time NBA champion, four-time finals MVP. Here's my question, though. Tara Vanderveer, LeBron James. Is it possible that we could say these people are underappreciated? Would you keep them in the same radio segment or the same paragraph or writing a paragraph? Because I think as much as LeBron's done, 40,000 points and a lot of people hating on him. Tara Vanderveer, all those championships, 70 years old on the sideline, I kind of think this is her march, and I kind of think LeBron, like this weekend, getting to 40,000 points, it's going to be another opportunity to sort of celebrate LeBron and what he has done. I think for Tara Vanderveer, the problem, you know, I do think she's underappreciated. She's a great coach, three national championships. You cannot argue that. But Gino Ariema has, you know, how many championships does he have? Like, So he's like the GOAT women's coach. And so I think for her, like, it's hard to really say, yeah, she's underappreciated when there's no way that you can argue she's a better coach than Gino. 11 for Gino. Right. 11 but, for Gino. So, I mean, he has a, but isn't it different? Like, she's coaching at Stanford. Isn't it easier for what he did at UConn versus what she did at Stanford well, I mean, or he, Pat Summit at Tennessee? But he built UConn. Like, that's the thing. He built it, right? It wasn't like he came in there and they were already winning a bunch of championships. So, I, I think for LeBron, there's always that argument of, he may be the best player of all time, and you can argue that with a straight face and you're not crazy, where I don't think you can ever argue Tara Vanderveer is the best coach of all time. And she got more wins. but She got, she got more wins. LeBron has more points. LeBron, hey, Michael Jordan has more titles. You I, know, I, 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 I get your point. Maybe, maybe you're right I, then. Maybe you are both underappreciated. I'm just saying. I, I, I'm not, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't walk into a room with a straight face and say, LeBron, is he underappreciated? Because people are going to, what are you talking about? Everybody talks about LeBron. LeBron talks about LeBron. But I just, I guess for the, for the point of, just for the subject of argument, like Pat Summit has eight national championships. You know, when she passed, she had eight titles at Tennessee. Awesome. Jano got 11. You, you talk about Tara Vanderveer. In you know her conference championship, she's dominated the Pac-12. I also I just kind of wonder: is it an advantage or a disadvantage to be at Stanford and coaching in her sport? Because on one hand, you could probably argue that she had players like Jennifer Az and others who came through her program years ago, and and you know it was a different time for women's sports, and she was able to keep players from going into the WNBA draft because there wasn't a WNBA at the time, you know, years ago. And she has spanned, you know, all this time, all these seasons successfully in a way that gives her some longevity and more wins than anybody. But I'm kind of looking at LeBron going, yeah, he's kind of done the same thing. He's just been consistently really great or, you know, in some years outstanding. And I kind of think there's a parallel to those two careers. I don't know. Maybe it's a reach. Anna's coming up with the 5 at 5. We've got Punch It Audio also in hour number three, which is known as the happy hour. Leave it locked in here on this great Friday. We will take you right into the weekend. You might say this show has been a delight. It has. We had John Strong, the voice of American soccer, on in hour one. He was fascinating. Fascinating glimpse into Russia. It's time the greed of college sports 
the ambition of professional sports bleeding into European countries. And we talked about the World Cup qualifiers and World Cup base camps that possibly could be in Eugene, maybe. Right around the University of Oregon's facilities. Keep an eye on that. Hour two, it was the singing linebacker. It was, uh, you know, the guy's got an album out. It's called When. New York on Sunday. Big city taking a nap. I love that. Anna, you missed John Papadakis. He's so disappointed that you weren't here. Oh, He would have sang to you again. Sounds great. He, uh, he's he got his album out. It's called When. Grab it on YouTube. Subscribe to him on YouTube. Okay, I did. I'm subscriber 23. <laughs> so I he's 75 years old, 74 years old. He's still singing. Uh, find him. The album's called When. He's on Spotify and other places as well. He does a lot of Frank Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr., uh, Bing Crosby, smooth stuff. Here's here's one of the uh, songs I liked uh, that he sang too, Anna. Here. And when I told them. Beautiful you are. They didn't believe me. <laughs> that puts me in a mood. Yeah, I'm telling you, I'm going to play that in the background, like next time we are having dinner. Yeah. Kids, whatever. Yeah. Kids get mad at me because I'll play like Italian dinner music. Like, Every in night. In the background, and they're like, the same Italian music <laughs> in the background. The same. Uh, we've got the five at five. Anna's ready for it. I have questions for you as well. I Me? I mentioned Ernest Hemingway today yeah. in a piece that I wrote at johnconzano.com mm-hmm. and a urinal. Yeah. There's a story about a urinal. Mm-hmm. I got a message from a Hemingway what? who said, you got the story right, but there's a twist to it. I'll share it coming up. Let's play the five at five. Wow. The five at five. Number one. Now that is a tease. I can't wait. Uh, Okay, so let's talk about, remember those uniforms we've been discussing? The Major League Baseball uniform see-through pants? Canadian Softball League uniforms. (laughs) Well, it was a collab, you know, between Fanatics and Nike. Okay. And I think it's interesting that the CEO of Fanatics, Michael Rubin. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh is talking today defending his company against all these complaints. So these were designed by Nike. They were manufactured by Fanatics. He says, this is a little bit of a difficult position. We're purely doing exactly as we've been told, and we've been told we're doing everything exactly right. And we're getting the mm kicked out of us, so that's not fun. <laughs> we're just the messenger? Is he that, says, yeah. Nike designs everything. Nike well, hands us do. a spec and says, make this. We've made everything exactly to the spec. Well, to be fair to Nike, Under Armour had the original deal for these uniforms. Okay. And then Under Armour found out it was going to cost $50 million to create the uniforms, and Under Armour didn't have the scratch. 
and said, this is too big of a project for us, so they backed out at the 11th hour. Major League Baseball turns to Nike. Nike, trying to do the right thing, uses uh, um, materials that were supposed to be uh, green, you know, the, yeah. the materials, and, and, recycled materials. And, and breathable. Breathable. And, uh, like, water-resistant, like they would dry easily. But when you sweat. say breathable, you have to know there's going to be a little bit of pass-through there. They're potentially transparent. Well, it's just it's fine if they were black. Were they supposed they, to be see-through, though? Yeah. Right. Yeah. The problem is that they're white. <laughs> the problem is, like, if they were any other color, though, they would be like, don't be photographed with the sun behind you, Shohei. You know, like, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? All right. So, look, they're basically saying this is not on us. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Uh-huh. I know. So Sounds Major- like an excuse. Well, Major League Baseball, Nike, and Fanatics have stated they'll work together with players to adjust the uniform fit before opening day. They're saying fit, but I, I sort of suspect they're going to correct it. But they're going to say they didn't. You know what I mean? It's kind of face-saving, but... Mm. I don't know. What do you do if you're fanatics here? You, do you take the high road, knowing that you're going to take a public lashing for it, but Nike would probably appreciate you as a partner not throwing them under the bus solely? Or do you go public going, we're in a tough spot, but this ain't on us. We did everything we were told. That's, and that's what he's Sounds doing. Sounds like our nine-year-old and seven-year-old right now. <laughs> you told us to do that. <laughs> Number two. Uh, is the chain gang at an NFL game going to be a thing of the past? Uh Uh-oh. Did you know the league tested optical tracking for line-to-gang rulings at MetLife Stadium, Hard Rock Stadium, and the Super Bowl this season? And if it's ultimately implemented, this could take over the measuring duties from the league's iconic chain gang. Well, we have artificial intelligence. We have voice recognition technology. We have cloud computing. We have smartphones with 5G. <laughs> and we're still using a chain to measure 10 yards in a ball game? I've wondered. I've put, wondered. Put some find my friends on that football and let's figure out where it really is. Aha! The, the technology is not expected to be ready for the upcoming NFL season, and it would require a vote among NFL owners to be adapted into the rule book. Well, this would we hold be, on like, to it as a nostalgia thing. But uh, this would be like NFL people going, you know, we've been using this, uh, you know, what do you call that apparatus with the beads on it? You slide them over the to abacus? count the abacus to You're count. You asking me because yeah, Asian. that was like that was like <laughs> that was like a game of charades right there. I was like sliding the beads with my hand. Uh-huh. You got yeah. it right away. Good. Yeah. Next word. It's like twenty five thousand dollar password. Abacus. Totally. All right. So, but like this would be like the NFL going. We've been using an abacus, but we're experimenting with a, this thing called a calculator when we're counting up the yards at the end of the season. Like, get to it already. Really? You know? Or give it to Elon Musk. SpaceX will figure this out. I don't want Elon Musk involved. You know? No. I I think it's high time that you put this technology on an NFL field. The colleges today confirmed that they're going to use helmet technology if they pass the rule. The Rules Committee Uh is saying uh, the the, uh, top teams in college football, the 132 top teams, FBS, can use helmet to coach technology. 
Uh-huh. They have some restrictions. Just between like the quarterback, quarterback and the, and the head coach. They have some restrictions with the play clock. Like when it gets to 15 seconds, it cuts off. Mm-hmm. But just like the NFL does. Mm-hmm. But you can't be in your ear if you're like Dan Lanning and your quarterback's ear going, "Run to the left, run to the right, <laughs> back up now, throw it now, throw it." He's open. He's wide open. <laughs> you know, you, you can't be doing that. You know. Uh, my question on that is: Does that reduce the importance of a crowd, a home crowd? And the advantage no, of a home crowd because there's still there's still noise. That's yeah. the snap count and the players on the field are still encountering a hostile environment, and it happens in the NFL. Yeah, but you'll see the quarterback in the NFL. He'll put his hands over his ear holes on his helmet. Right, he's listening to his coach mm-hmm. in his ear. Go, you know. Yeah. Why write corn dog twenty three x go? Yeah. You know. Well, I guess that would reduce the sign stealing issue. But I think it would be kind of entertaining. Hmm. To put the feed, let the coach talk to the quarterback during the play and put that feed on TV. <laughs> Dan Lanning going, okay, go to the left. Run back to the right. The next iteration of Miked Up. Number three. Uh, Cam Newton's apologizing for that uh, little skerfuffle at the youth football tournament. This was a seven on seven tournament last weekend, a scuffle caught on video. During an episode of his YouTube show, he apologized to organizers of the tournament, players, and parents for his role in the scuffle. He says he let his emotions get the best of him. It should not have been called for, and with that, he apologized to anyone affected, acknowledging that his decision could have led to escalating violence. He said there was no excuse for his actions, which... He said made him feel like he let down the children and the members of the community who look up to him. I like that he's saying this. He basically said, hey, you know, I can't sit up there and say, hey, guys, you got to be bigger than that. Take the high road. And then all of a sudden he's involved in a scuffle like this. I also don't think he threw a punch, at least on the videos I watched. He was kind of fending people off the whole time. He looked kind of like the yard duty fighting against like third and fourth grade kids. <laughs> uh, you know, he's that big. So I, I just, you know, I hope the other people involved... And parents out there, by the way, if you're involved in the youth sports team, yeah, get a grip. Get a, you know, get a grip. It's still not clear what sparked the altercation, but he indicated it started with words. You're right. He didn't throw any punches, but engaged in pushing and shoving with three other people. Well, he's saying he's got to be better than that, and I hope the other people involved are also saying that somehow, some way. Number four. Um, let's see. Let's go with Steph Curry's wife. Aisha says she is pregnant again. They're expecting their fourth child. Four kids. That's a lot. Uh, They initially thought they were done having kids after their third child was born in 2018. But they had a change of heart. She said last year they looked at each other and agreed we wanted to do this again. And she says this pregnancy is hit, hitting differently. She's craving watermelon, Japanese peaches, and McDonald's griddles. I don't know if you remember, I took a picture of Steph Curry in the locker room because the Warriors knocked out the Blazers in that Western Conference Finals and won the West that year. It was five, what, five, six years ago. Mm-hmm. And they just had their baby, Cannon, mm-hmm. who uh, who has this kind of, uh, he, he has, the, he, when he was a baby, he was one of these babies that just had this perfectly round 
head. He was mm-hmm. so cute. And yeah. then he had curly hair. Aww. And so he had like this curly hair and this perfectly rounded face, <laughs> this baby face. Like okay. just a really cute kid. But I, so they have two girls and a boy. So they're looking for some balance. Why not go for five? Okay. Starting five. <laughs> you know, Aisha, come on. You got a chance to get five here. Uh-huh. You One say more. That. You say that so flippantly. Well, their their kids are 11, 8, and 5. Okay? Yeah. yeah. So this, although they're saying it wasn't planned, it appears exactly three years apart, all those all those kids. Hmm. 11, 8, 5. Yeah, true. true. Now, well, now five there's one. And then five now. and then zero. Well, they took a little break. I guess you're right. So there you go. Four for the Currys. Mm-hmm. I like that. Number five. Okay. I, have I think a, they, Don't you what? think they should have what? named their kids? What? Don't you think they should have named <laughs> them like red, green, Why? yellow, curry? curry? Yeah. Curry? That would have been better. Masaman? Yeah. That would have been so good. Like, if Penang. my last name were Curry, Penang. I would name my kids Red, Green, uh-huh. Yellow. Yeah. Oh, come on. Oh, yeah, they'd love you You have that. a chance uh-huh. to do that? Yeah. Don't you think if this were, like, Kanye and Kim, <laughs> they would have done that? Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah. Northwest, mm-hmm. all that? Mm-hmm. All right. Saint. Go ahead. Do the number five. Okay. <clears throat> you I, had, I, had yellow, yeah. I had yellow curry for lunch. Yeah, you did. That's, That's why. why it was on, on my mind. It's on your mind. There you go. Can I, can I do number five? Yeah, now? go ahead. Number five. Do you have any okay. other thoughts about the curry? Right, let's just do it again. Number five. <laughs> Are you sure? Yes. Okay. But think of the Christmas card. <laughs> think of the Christmas card you could do if, it, if you had five, four different kinds of curry. Okay. You know? Yeah. You could be like, here's the family photo, and it's just different bowls of curry on yeah. the Christmas card. Yeah. Not really a family picture. It'd be mm-hmm. funny. It would be really and then funny. Steph could write one of those letters where he's like, you know, mm-hmm. the brag this, letter. This year, mm-hmm. I scored two thousand points. <laughs> you know, Aisha had another curry. You know, it was. It'd be really good. Well, we did you, spiced did, up the year. Did you name your kids just for the Christmas card? Is that what you're saying? I'm thinking uh, you got to yeah, be totally, forward thinking. Totally, Stephen. You got to have everything planned out. Mm-hmm. Everything forward thinking. All right, number five. Come on, get to it. Let's do this. Okay. Uh, okay. I haven't talked about this one yet. I, I was real close earlier in the week, but now this has pushed me over the edge. Have, have you heard about, have you spoken on the show about Tyreek Hill and the influencer who is suing him, claiming that he broke her leg while they were doing football drills at his home. We have talked about it, but I don't know the late. I, we heard her side of the story, which was <laughs> there was a lot of messaging back and forth. Yeah, yeah. And then her son went to his football camp. Right. And then so we naturally, all... We, we naturally, all, she winds up at his house. Yeah, right. and we all Googled it right. just to kind of see. We wanted to see what this camp was like. So we Googled Tyreek Hill, influencer, and... Her picture popped up. Yeah. Now, what do you know? Okay, well, now, so, you know, she claims that he got angry and embarrassed during this football drill in his backyard when she knocked him back. That And that he charged at her violently with great force, resulting in significant and serious injuries. This is according to the lawsuit. She declined to get medical attention. 
She got home and then was later diagnosed with a fractured leg and needed surgery. So that's the essence of the lawsuit. But he That's hardcore right there. Yeah. Yeah, that is hardcore. Um he's defending himself now. I think it's interesting that several days have gone by and now he's finally saying that that lawsuit is just bull. He's saying that she got injured tripping over a dog. Mm. Interesting. Uh-huh. That's a little bit different story there. That's a much different story. Yeah. And what's not in dispute is the text messages or the DMs between them in which he's like saying it's not true and she says what and he says you can't be that tall. She says I'm 6-1 and I'll prove it. He says, you know, basically come on over and uh <laughs> he then she registers her son for his seven, his camp. Like this is uh this is really a, an interesting uh Deal, but how do they end up in the backyard doing drills? That's not what I, my impression of her going to his house was about. Who knows? Who knows what people do these days in their leisure time? Sounds like a know? fun first date, doesn't it? Yeah, play football. Yeah, do some drills. But is it? But isn't Tyreek Hill? <laughs> didn't he? He didn't have his house burned down lately. Like, remember that story? That wasn't him. Well, wasn't he, that? He, well, yeah, he had a fire. He also he had a fire. just a couple of days ago. There was a oh. story about uh, he. They found out. He admitted to like having a fourth child with another fourth woman, um, and he has oh. to pay for that too, as well. And oh, um, yeah, he's been in the news. I missed a that one. Well, he got married, and then seventy-six days later, he's got divorced. Uh huh. Well, you know, things happen. Well, well, when you have four children with four different women, I think that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was his thirtieth birthday today, and now oh. he, now he's getting a lawsuit. So happy birthday! I'm just hoping there's video of this. Because oh. what what was what was supposed to be the engaging in playful football drills, he claims, resulted in her falling over a dog, not because he turned violent on her. Mm. Uh, I don't know what to believe there, but I I wish we didn't have these stories, because they're they're you almost you couldn't make this up. Yeah. Like if I if I dreamed the story up and I pitched it like Stephen, this is what I'm going to say on air today. He'd be like, "Yeah, it's kind of unbelievable." <laughs> you know, influencer goes to Tyreek Hill's house, gets injured, breaks her leg doing a football drill, <clears throat> declines medical assistance, walks out of the place, then later has a surgery to put a rod in her leg and sues for $75,000. Meanwhile, Tyreek says, "Eh, nah, she tripped over a dog." Mhm. I want to know what kind of dog it was. Unbelievable. You know, was it a wiener dog? Was he, it a German Shepherd? He strikes me as a smaller dog kind of guy. Really? Yeah. Yeah? He does. A little fur-fur dog? I bet he does. I've done no research on small this. Small dog I think energy. Small <laughs> dog energy. <laughs> I like that. What you'd call, what the Philadelphia Phillies would call, $1 dogger night. You know? <laughs> All right. Yeah, they canceled that. They didn't canceled they? that bad boy because people were throwing wieners. They were throwing wieners. They're buying a dollar dog and not valuing it. Have you seen oh. the video? Of it? It? Have you seen the video? Yeah, of it? it's pretty yeah, good. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Um, hey, I got a question. So I mentioned Ernest Hemingway today in print. There's oh this, yeah, this story about Hemingway where he, you know, he lived in Key West, and if you still go there today, you will, uh, you can see like here's the spot where, mm-hmm. as Mike Leach uh, famously said on this show. Once upon a time, you can go take that tour. But um, so Hemingway used to eat, drink at a bar called Sloppy Joe's. And then 
the bar was being relocated. And I wrote in my column today that Hemingway took the urinal home out of the bar bathroom and carried it down the street. And then when people said, hey, why did you do that? He'd say, I pissed away so much of my money into that urinal, I own it. Uh, I had Colin Hemingway email me today and say, hey, I read what you wrote, and that that urinal is still in the front yard of Ernest Hemingway House and Museum. Hmm. He says it's disguised. He said that Sloppy Joe was in on it, that Sloppy Joe also kind of gave his blessing and helped Ernest Hemingway carry it down the street. Now, this sparked a bigger debate with Colin Hemingway, who, by the way, lives in central Oregon. What? And was a, taught taught uh, literature and has written several books himself and so i got into this debate with hemingway and i told him this is not for publication but i won't say what he said about this Mm -hmm. but i have a question about this because i was thinking about genius yeah we you and i were having this conversation about robin williams the other day yeah who you know he was declining with his mental faculties late in his life Mm -hmm. and he was battling depression and he was such a brilliant performer and comedian yeah and sort of the correlation between genius, substance abuse, mental illness, um, depression, um, and it's not just a Robin Williams thing. Like, you know, you talk about writers who have gone through this. There are a number of genius writers who have had issues with mental illness and lives that ended early. And so I kind of got in this back in the back and forth with with Mr. Hemingway, you know. F. Scott Fitzgerald dies young. Robert Louis Stevenson dies young. Sylvia Plath dies young. Mm-hmm. Anne Bronte dies young. Jane Austen dies young. There were so many like brilliant people. Is there a correlation maybe between the genius and things like alcoholism, things like, you know, different mental illnesses? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know what the like A B causation would necessarily be, but you see that with entertainers too. Like, you know, why isn't Michael Jackson alive and well here today? Whitney Houston, the people that we've lost to um, tragedy like that, like their lives ended prematurely. So it it is. I, I think it's a fascinating topic. Like, are some people so extremely talented, like savant like talented, that it's almost like their being can't handle all of that ability, you know? Yeah. And it just overtakes them. Like I don't know. The, I don't know. The demons of their brilliance, more or less, is what I was thinking about. I think there's a thesis there for somebody who wants to attack it, not me. <laughs> but, it, you know, it, interesting. Like, does the creative spirit track mental oddness, you know? Yeah. Think about that. Brilliant performers who have also maybe struggled and – you know, some of it applies to sports, too. We see people who are genius in their profession yeah. who struggle in other ways. And we go like, you know, hey, you know, they're just eccentric or the same thing that makes them great mm-hmm. in one discipline makes them really difficult to deal with in another. It makes them hard fit for society. Well, it's like sometimes, sometimes when they retire, they don't know what to do or yes. even worse, they'll die like right after they retire. Like Think about Joe Paterno, yeah. right? Like stuff like that. Well, in, in Ernest Hemingway's family, you know, depression and suicide, there were four four straight generations hmm. of, so there's mental illness then. F. Scott Fitzgerald was a heavy drinker, but but was he driven to drink by his genius or 
Was he battling some, medicating some form of mental illness that also made him a great writer? Well, Hunter S. Thompson. I mean, yeah. Come on. That's um, that guy, you know. <laughs> yeah. And Ernest Hemingway also because he, you know, he was a guy who was off in the war. He had mm-hmm. several head injuries. Yeah. That he suffered. So, you know, was he, did he have CTE? Yeah. Like, you start to think about stuff like that. And Sylvia Plath, people know her. She died at 30. And but but also people of that era were also dying from diseases that we now have cures from. And mm-hmm. so it's very interesting, tuberculosis and other things. So yeah. I don't know. It's just uh, it's a rabbit hole. I went down today with mm-hmm. the Hemingway. So how about them apples? I can't believe you spoke to a Hemingway. Didn't speak to him. Oh, we're just corresponding. We're pen pals. Yeah, is it better to write a Hemingway? Probably. Or speak with a Hemingway? Probably better to write. There you go. <laughs> Leave it here. I was talking to a friend of mine today. I'll just say who it was. I don't think he'll mind. Alex Molden, who has been on this show numerous times. He's got a uh, whole but He was, you know, I met him for coffee and he, he was driving a van. Because when you have eight kids, you got to drive a van. You get up around eight, nine, ten. That's what happens. But uh, I was talking to him. I was asking him because, you know, there's a wide gap when you have that many kids between your oldest and your youngest. And do you feel like when you're parenting the younger children, you know something that the other parents uh, who are like have kids in that same grade? And I know I feel that way because my oldest is is older than the two younger daughters. And so when the youngest, who's now seven, was in kindergarten, I remember looking at the other parents going, gosh, they're so young. They're so young. Like, I, I know things they don't know. I've been places they haven't been. I've seen some stuff. And so... For parents who are out there and who have been through it before, someday, uh, about whether or not older parents are better parents. That's always true, but I think parents who are older probably are better parents than they were than they, when they were younger, if that makes any sense. Because also you're getting the modeling for what you want to be from as a parent. You're getting it from your own parents. Like we're all drawing upon our own childhood and our own experiences or family members or other families. And, you know, it's a familiar refrain probably when you say, well, so-and-so's family, and this is what they do in their family. And we all kind of measure ourselves and say, are we doing it right? Like so-and-so's family allows their kids to have their iPads at the dinner table. And then, of course, you have to say, well, that's not what we do in our family. I don't know if you have rules like that, but I made a comment. Yesterday on the show to Teresa Gould, the Pac-12 commissioner, she did an interview. We did about a 45-minute interview yesterday, uh, full-length interview, and we recorded like 20 minutes of it for radio use. And so the rest of it was us talking kind of off-air before the interview. And I made a comment to her. She was talking about her dad, and her dad in their small Iowa town had written a letter to the city council, arguing that Teresa, when she was in elementary school, should be allowed to play baseball in Little League because they didn't have a softball team in their small town. And I said to Teresa, that's what any dad probably would love to hear, is her telling that story, and her dad's passed away, but her telling the story, recalling what it felt like to have her dad advocate on her behalf he was fighting for her wrote a letter to the city council was one of the first things she brought up right in the interview as i asked her about her small town she brought up the s-curved road 
that snake alley that they have. It's a very distinct street in their small Iowa town. She brought up the fact that everybody knows everybody. And she said, I still have a copy of the letter that my dad wrote to the city council arguing on my behalf, saying I should be able to play baseball with the boys. Now, I, as a dad of three daughters, heard that, and it made me warm all over. Because I thought to myself, what a cool thing after you're gone, you've passed away, to have your daughter sort of fondly remembering that time that you advocated on her behalf, that you had her back. And I thought, that is gold right there. And, but then, you know, I would, is it, you know, I had other people who said, well, he taught her how to fight. You know, look at her now. And I, but I also think that, that part of it, and maybe I'm wrong here, I could only ask the women in the audience what that would mean to you to know years ago when you were a little girl in elementary school and they said you can't play softball to have your dad step up and go, I have your back here. I think that would be a pretty cool thing. But I'm not an elementary school-aged girl living in Iowa. I, I'm a dad, I'm a girl dad who goes, that's the kind of dad I want to be. I want my kids someday to be like, my dad had my back. I think it's a really cool thing. Let's play some Punch It. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Fish Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio. Presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Iowa's Caitlin Clark says she's going pro. She explained why. Punch it. I think just going into senior night, um, having that decision clear, not only for myself, but our fans, my teammates, um, I think that was super important. And honestly, just, I don't know, getting the weight of the world off my shoulders and being able to enjoy this last these last couple, this last month uh, with my teammates, I think is the biggest thing. And, you know, I think I kind of knew in my heart. Honestly, like I would say, like I've gone honestly back and forth a little bit, especially early in the year. And I think, you know, as the season kind of played out, it became more clear to me. And I know I said at the beginning of the year, like I will definitely just kind of feel in my gut and know in my gut. And I think that's exactly what happened. I kind of knew what was going to be the right step for me. And obviously I had a lot of support system around me and my family, uh, my friends and, you know, talked to them. And um, I think everybody supported my decision. And that's obviously reassuring obviously reassuring and also it won't be a distraction heading into senior night heading into the big 10 tournament heading into the ncaa tournament i think it's a strategy play by caitlin clark she is the face of basketball college basketball men's or women's she's the biggest star in the game right now kenny smith talked about victor Wembenyama last night 28 points 13 rebounds seven assists wemby's got it going punch it for for Wembenyama the measurement is not going to be in his stats because, because of the, especially the way the game is played now, it's a little bit more free-flowing and offensively free-flowing. So it's all going to dictate wins. And that is going to dictate because in games like this, they don't have the same significance. Mm. And you could get numbers because you're on the court, even in losing times. Mm. So you can get, you know, we all have been on a team where a guy goes, oh, He's got 16. He's going to try to get 22. Right. And not saying he's trying to do that, but you can because everyone's took their the, uh, foot off the gas. I guess so, but I feel like Kenny's just spent a lot of time raining on everybody's parade lately. The Spurs are not a good team. They're 12 and 48. You can't mark the Spurs' success or failure based upon what 
Wembenyama's wins are doing, you have to look at him in a vacuum and go, hey, this guy's making a difference on the court because in addition to the 28 points, 13 rebounds, 7 assists, he has 5 blocks, 5 threes. Um, you know, they beat Oklahoma City. I think it goes beyond it transcends winning for him right now because the team's so bad, but I get the the like the technical part of Kenny's argument. I just don't agree with it. And I Rome, would, yeah, I, go I was going to say I would argue also that the there's a lot of good players on bad teams and that's exactly what happens. They put up monster stats like this. So yeah, it is important once they get good players on their team, but he's a good player on a bad team. So he's going to put up yeah. monster numbers. For now. For now. I right. think I think for now I'm looking at his numbers and for Blazer fans you know, keep an eye on the Spurs. The Blazers have 15 wins, 15 and 42. The Spurs are at 12 and 48. Blazers are in a little bit of race here. Pistons and Wizards on the other side in the East both have nine wins. I don't know if the Blazers are going to win again, Stephen. I mean, they didn't win in February. <laughs> let's, let's, <laughs> Did not win in February. Look like they're in a race to the bottom. Roma Dunze, Washington receiver, talking about why he is working out at the Combine. Punch it. For me, I just want to go out there and be able to, you know, compete not against, you know, not just against all the guys here, but you know, few past generations, generations to come, right? Like this will be something that I'm sure that'll continue for a long time. So just to be able to compare myself and 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 see where I'm at entering the league, I feel like it's a fun thing to do. Um, as well as like you said, you said one of the one of the three, right, to go off the board. I want it to be, you know, number you one. Be one. I want to be the one to go off the board. So um, if I have to go out there and, and continue to prove. Uh, why? Why I'm the best, and you know, and I have the opportunity to do that. I'm, I'm going to do it. Look, I, I, you know, I don't think he's going to get in front of Marvin Harrison Jr., but I think I respect what Odunze is doing. I think he's going to have a fine NFL career. He's going to be a high pick. He's going to make lots of money. Um, you know, the thing for him in his NFL career will be like he was such a difference maker at Washington, and the, one of the reasons why I projected I think he will be a difference maker in the NFL is everybody knew in college that Roma Dunze was the most dangerous receiver on a team that liked to throw the ball. And so the game plan and the coverage and the matchups often were rolled to his side coverage-wise, best defensive back put on him, and yet Roma Dunze, time and again, made the plays, got the ball, was a big difference maker for Washington. I think he'll have that same impact in the NFL. Troy Franklin, another receiver from Oregon, Says NFL teams have been asking him, well, I'll let him answer. What have they been asking him? Punching. You know, they're just um, asking me about my background, how I grew up and stuff, you know, um, what sports I played, things like that. And then um, as a player, they just want to know, um, like, you know, how hard I work, you know, um, if I have the work ethic and things like that. They want to know my football smarts and um, just knowing what I can do to help the team, things like that, you know. So most definitely, yeah. I feel like his time at Oregon was a blink, and yet we got to see a lot of him. He obviously had the stats. I think Troy Franklin's going to be a fine receiver as well at the next level, but be interesting to see where he goes in relation to Adunze and the other receivers. Chris Sims talking about Bo Nix. He likes Bo Nix. Punch it. Bo Nix, Oregon, really has played a ton of football, but I would say his arm is... It's... It's a lot stronger than I expected. It might be stronger than Jaden Daniels. It's not as strong as Caleb Williams, but it's, you know, it's an elite arm, and he's an elite athlete. And, Mike, I'm big into, you know, hey, when it's not there, what do you make happen? 
See, him, Caleb Williams, Bo Nix, Caleb Williams, and Jay Danos always make something happen. Oh, there's really nowhere to throw. Where are you going to fit it in? Ooh, he fit it in, yeah. right? He can do that. So that, to me, is the game. And then with people around him, he's really impressive. Like, really impressive. You know, doesn't need space. Can have people in his face and still throw a 20-yard out route with, like, alligator arms and do all that type of stuff. So, yeah, I think there's going to be some, some interesting conversation there to be had. I think Bo Nix is helped by... The success of guys like Brock Purdy. Bo Nix played a ton of football, 61 starts in college. He's a leader. He's very mature. He's married. You know, he's married in college. You know, we talk about the that kind of maturity that Bo Nix brought. I do think it translates into the NFL where we do see young quarterbacks come into the league and struggle a little bit. And I think it will be a blessing if he is not taken by a team that's drop, drafting, you know, in the top – you know, 15 picks, even if he ends up in the second round. What do you, make, for, what, what do you make of Sims saying his physical traits are underrated and that he has a really uh, strong arm, stronger than Jaden Daniels, who's going to be I a top two I didn't see pick. that. I didn't see that. I I think Bo Nix has a strong enough arm to be an NFL quarterback. And, and he's not going to beat you with his arm all the time, but he's a really good athlete and he's mature. And I, I think the comparison is Brock Purdy, although Purdy was taken so much later. I think you redraft the draft that Purdy's in, and he's like a second-round pick. So I I just think that Purdy's success has opened the door for a guy like Bo Nix. place like Denver be perfect for him. Bo Nix talking about his strengths as a quarterback. Here he is. Punch it. Uh, I process information at a really high level. Um, I can take a game plan, go in there, and uh, execute it. Um, I can use my resources around me. Um, and, and make it work, go down the field and score points. Because uh, at the end of the day, that's what quarterbacks are here for. Right. Um, we got to score points and we got to lead offenses. We got to take our 11 and move the ball down the field. Um, but I think processing the information comes from preparing throughout the week. Uh, I feel like I prepare at a high level. Um, I give myself a lot of time throughout the week um, to make sure that I'm prepared for Saturdays. Um, and this year, you know, I felt like I did that at a really high level because, um, you know, of, of the experience that I was able to put together. Um, you know, it just kind of fell into place, and I, I took what I had learned, you know, before, and I wanted to put, you know, a whole year together and go go all out on it, and um, that's what we were able to do. We had a great, efficient offense. I agree with the processing part. He gets rid of the football quickly. He's very accurate. I think he makes sense in a whole bunch of offenses. It, you know, you put him in San Francisco's offense with, you know, Brandon Ayuk and George Kittle and Christian McCaffrey and Debo Samuels and Bo Nix is a star. You put him... Somewhere maybe like Las Vegas with the Raiders, maybe he struggles because, you know, they just don't have the other guys. So it's kind of where, you know, I'm. it's a be careful what you ask for thing, and I've seen people project him late in the first round. I say, great, late in the first round, if he's going to a team that had a winning record and not some team that is traded into the late first round that is a losing team. So keep an eye on the franchise that picks him. It's going to be a... You know, he's like a lot of quarterbacks. He's going to, you know, he's, he's a guy looking for a fit more than anything. The end of the Washington State-USC game last night was thrilling. Washington State came back from a 12-point deficit to win. Here's USC at the buzzer. Punch it. Boogie Ellis is Kobe Johnson in the corner. Under 10 seconds to play. Here is Ellis. Gets the three off. No. Rodman tips out. Johnson for the three. That's a miss. Game over. Washington State was down nearly the entire way. But they outlast the Trojans here in Pullman. 
Yeah, really kind of a weird finish at the end of the game for USC. I don't know if you caught this, but Isaiah Collier, who's USC's best player, best offensive player, was not on the floor at the end of the game, Stephen. Uh, Andy Enfield likes to do this thing where he takes the guys off the floor when they're on defense and put them back in on offense. Because of how the game went, Enfield couldn't get Collier on the floor at the end of the game. He did not have a timeout, and so USC's frantically trying to tie the game, but they don't have Isaiah Collier on the floor. Yeah, and that's that's a coaching issue right there. That's a mistake by Andy Enfield, and I understand the thought process, but, man, you got to have that guy on the court. Like He's your best offensive player. He's going to be an NBA top 10, 10 NBA draft pick. you got to have him on the court in that situation when you need a three, and to not have him, it's that's inexcusable. Like, that's... I mean, not say, I would say not fireable, but USC is so bad that could be a fireable offense, in my opinion. Yeah, and I thought USC played better. They've been better. You know, the last couple of games they've been more competitive, but uh, I'll be curious to see them in the conference tournament in Vegas in a couple of weeks. But Washington State, 22 wins on the season. Uh, great, Another great win uh, for Kyle Smith's team at home in Pullman. Leave it here. Rasheed Wallace talks about Sabonis. You'll hear it next. I love this. I just saw a uh, reply to my tweet today. I was tweeting about the uh, SEC and the Big Ten wanting to turn the expanding playoff into an invitational tournament for themselves. And Michael Baumgartner, who is uh, running for Congress in the state of Washington, quote tweeted it and said, what, what makes college athletics special is being destroyed before our eyes. we got to get Baumgartner on the show. I would love to talk to him. Can he make a difference if he gets to Washington, D.C.? He's basically saying we already have one F- one NFL. We don't need two. Uh, let's get Baumgartner on the show. Uh, Rasheed Wallace speaking out, talking about Sabonis, talking about what a passer the big man was. I love this kind of stuff. Here's former Trailblazer Rasheed Wallace talking about former Blazer uh, Arvidas Sabonis. Yeah, when I was there, he was a he was a vet then. Of course, he was much older, and you right. know he had all the ailments, but he was still out there diamond us and sh- you know me, Jr., Damon, Bonzi, mm. uh, even Pitt. You know, for the times when he was, but man, he yeah he would don the sh- times where he might have quite a few games let us in assists. Is he the best passer you ever played with? Sabonis, he's one of them. He's one of the best. I would have to say he's the best big man passer, yes. Mm. Yes. But uh, overall, he's one of them. One of them, he said, best big man. Anybody seen photos, videos, watched, looked at Sabonis' stats, um, you know, knows what a great passer he was. And, in fact, um, he had nine assists one time in a game in 1999, Blazers game. Big man with nine assists. Um, One of the best European players of all time. And got to the NBA, unfortunately, too late because of the Soviet Union, and they would not allow Arvinas Sabonis to come over and be a professional. And so he waited and waited and had to wait. And uh, ultimately, you know, Atlanta Hawks took him in the 85 draft. He was under 21 at the time. And then Arvinas Sabonis doesn't get, um, you know, to the NBA until 1995. So... You know, he ends up playing six years with the Blazers. And then I remember in 2002, 2003, being around Sabonis. He was pretty, he was pretty, I think, psychologically ready to go. He was ready to retire in 2003. That, And it didn't help that that locker room at the time was the Jail Blazers locker room. And Sabonis was kind of looking around going, I'm too old for this crap. 
And I can remember late in that year going to Sabonis' locker to interview him and talk with him. And, you know, at first he pretended that he didn't speak English, but I knew that, you know, Sabonis was so, you know, so worldly. He spoke Spanish and other Russian and other languages. And so I started talking to Sabonis in Spanish, and he just smiled at me, and then he answered me in English. So, you know, it was just one of these, I don't want to talk, I don't speak English is what he attempted. But... I, I I never forget in two thousand three two thousand four the Blazers were going to have to pay him five million dollars if he came back, and Arvidas Sabonis rather than come back to Portland and make five million said, "I'm going back home," and he ended up going going back to to the Soviet Union.